fault lines. Live from the divided states of America in the belly of the beast here in Washington, D.C. Good morning. You are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for joining us out there on Rumble. We are on 105.5 FM and 1390 AM if you're in the D.C. metro. We're in Kansas City at 1140 AM, 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM on that radio dial. I am the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan alongside guest co-host this week, the Atomic MAGA, at least this week, That's Atomic right. MAGA, Malik Abdul, and the Vice of Legalese, Miss M. Reese Everson. This is the show that dares to go there. This is Fault Lines. Good morning. Good morning. Happy Friday. Good morning. We made it. We Yes, you have been... Troopers hanging in there. Another week. With this these was crazy a short hours. week. This was a short week for sure. But I understand that we're going to be back for a couple of more days. Yes. Jamara will be back, I believe, next Wednesday. So Malik and Reese will be joining us at the top of the week. And then. So you guys can... are stuck with us for a <laughs> Listen, couple of days. Holding you hostage on the airwaves. <laughs> then you can go home and collapse on Tuesday. Yes. It will happen. It will People happen. don't know how exhausting media work actually is. Yeah. Because it, it really. Like there's, there are there are tribes in, I think it's Papua New Guinea that when when the first white man landed in Papua New Guinea and they had a camera, the tribes later uh, it was explained that the tribes had believed the camera steals your soul. Yeah, and they wow. won't take pictures. Native Americans that. too. Right. Yes, I can believe that. There are a lot of native tribes mm-hmm. all over the world that were like, whoa, 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 with this camera stuff. And after working in media for so long. I'm going to have to say I, I agree. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> okay. All right. Like, all right. Why am I so tired? Well, uh, you know, but the good thing is that it's Friday, so you have the weekend. Even though this was a short week, you have the weekend to kind of recuperate. If not today, you have the weekend to recuperate. So I'm looking forward to it. I don't have any plans. The weather, I love the weather now. It's getting... It's fall. Yes, it's getting Reese. cooler, which I absolutely it's, love. The high is going to be 83 degrees today, guys. It is That's, still summer. That is better than 90 degrees. I'm a fall. I, my favorite time of the year actually is fall. I like fall and spring here. Fall and spring. Here, anyway. Fall well, and spring. spring is like two weeks in D.C. Yes, yes. But fall is a nice stretch. I love it. I love it's it. Like you can just a wear months. a nice cardigan. I don't like I don't like winter because you have to bundle up with scarves. and Like, I hate layers of clothes. Yes, it's I just, stuffy. I don't so like it. And is summer fall. is a no-no for me. Oh, Even, God, I love it here. if I'm traveling to a beach or something. But outside of that, I am not a summer person. But I can do what? without it summer. It hasn't Unless been it's California. Year. California summers, actually California year-round, is where it's at. I can Although do that. it is really weird at Christmas to be out at the beach with your dog. During Christmas? Yeah, because it's wow. like 75 degrees it's at fantastic. Christmas. fantastic. I wow. leave here and go there just for it. I That's used, what I in used school, to do. I used to have this thing called F Your Coat Tour. I couldn't take Chicago's winters anymore, and I would just jump on the plane Spirit flight for $126. Back then. Good Spirit. old Back then. For 126 bucks and Can't head get over. those prices anymore, Listen. let me tell you. But yeah, that was that was Christmas for me is like palm trees wrapped with, I love with it. little Christmas lights, little twink, twinkly Christmas lights and eating frozen yogurt on the beach with your dog playing in the sand and you might Fantastic. need a you might need a hoodie. I absolutely <laughs> love it. And my grandmother was a travel agent, so the only white Christmas I know of is on the beach in Cancun. 
Wow. Oh, we spent almost every Christmas in Cancun. That's oh, nice. Lucky you. Lucky you. But I mean, similar to California Christmas. So. Exactly. But, you know, nowadays, now that I have a little one, I will look forward. He's already looking forward to building a snowman. Oh. So, yeah. So he's 24. So what, what's, on the, what's in the news today? Well, not, not a snowy summer, because that would make news with all the climate change. But uh, let's go over, obviously, last night's news was the, the big news was the death of Queen Elizabeth, which we'll get to. But let's start off here in the district. The mayor, Muriel Bowser, has just declared a public emergency on Thursday over the crisis stemming from the arrival of thousands of migrants into the U.S. Capitol being shipped out of Texas, some even out of Arizona. Now, the emergency plan includes the establishment of a brand new office because we need more bureaucracy. You know we do. They love it here. She's establishing the Office of Migrant Services, a subordinate to the Department of Human Services here, whose mission will be strictly to provide support for those incoming migrants. Then over in New York, Steve Bannon has arrived at the courthouse in New York City as of Thursday morning to surrender himself to the New York state prosecutors over fraud charges. Bannon and three associates allegedly raised more than 25 million bucks supposedly to help fund Donald Trump's signature border wall on GoFundMe. Two of his associates pled guilty to fraud charges back in 2020. Bannon himself has been accused of pocketing about a million bucks in cash from that fundraiser. Bannon has dismissed the charges against him, saying on Tuesday this week that authorities were trying to prosecute him on phony charges and alleging that he was being persecuted by New York uh, District Attorney Alvin Bragg. Then last night, the U.S. Coast Guard responded to a massive fire that broke out on the surface of Lake Larry. Quote, the pipeline has been secured, says the U.S. Coast Guard in a statement. The cause of the explosion is currently still under investigation. According to one version so far, a barge broke loose and hit a natural gas pipeline, which may have triggered an explosion. Then a county official in Las Vegas, Nevada, now facing murder charges after he was arrested Thursday, suspected of stabbing to death a journalist whose critical reporting may have cost him his reelection, so he believes. Clark County Public Administrator Robert Tellis was taken into custody Wednesday evening and charged with the killing of Las Vegas Review-Journal Jeff German. Police in tactical gear surrounded Tellus' home on Wednesday afternoon, shortly after he was spotted entering the premises wearing a hazmat protective suit. He was wheeled out of the building on a stretcher and loaded into an ambulance about four hours later, so very strange arrest there. Then to international news, as we mentioned at the top, Queen Elizabeth II, Britain's longest reigning monarch, has died at the age of 96. National mourning period has begun in the UK. Sky News reporting it'll likely last for 10 days. Then the Pentagon has committed 92 million bucks to replenish the U.S. military's stock of M982 Excalibur, a 155-millimeter artillery shell with 
an effective firing range up to 57 kilometers, Bloomberg is reporting, citing a DOD accounting document. Now, the 92 million bucks was spent for, quote, the procurement of replacement M982 Excalibur munitions transferred to Ukraine in support of the international effort to counter Russian aggression, says the document. So if Bloomberg's reporting is accurate, the document is the first direct confirmation that Washington is supplying the shells to Kiev, with U.S. officials previously remaining tight-lipped to media questions on this particular matter. Then on Friday, the Council of the EU adopted a decision to suspend issuing visas between the EU and Russia. The Council made a statement on that. The general rules of the visa code will therefore apply to all Russian citizens. The decision will enter into force on the day of its adoption and will apply as of the 12th of September, 2022. And classified NATO documents were leaked to the dark web after a massive cyber attack on the Armed Forces General Staff Agency of Portugal. Local news there reporting called Diario de Noticias. The sale of the dark web of hundreds of documents which had been sent to Portugal's officials by NATO was noticed by excuse me was noticed by US cyber intelligence agents who alerted the American embassy in Lisbon according to sources cited by that publication after that the Portuguese government was informed of the what they're calling significant data breach with a notice on the discovery sent directly to Prime Minister Antonio Costa back in August. And the administration of President Joe Biden has pledged another $2.2 billion in long-term military financing to Ukraine and 18 neighboring states and territories, quote, potentially at risk of future Russian aggression. That's pending approval by Congress, says Secretary of State Antony Blinken, while he was on his surprised, surprise visit to Kiev. Now, Blinken met with President Volodymyr Zelensky and other senior officials to discuss the details of the $2.2 billion aid package, of which $1 billion will go straight to Ukraine. The rest will be divided among regional security partners in order to help them, quote, deter and defend against emergent threats to their sovereignty and territorial integrity through strengthening their coordination with NATO and combating Russian influence and aggression, according to the State Department. And some Earth science news for you. Multiple dangerous climate tipping points are at the risk of being triggered if the global temperature rises beyond 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. New findings are being revealed. The study published in Science on September 9th warns that Earth is at risk of passing five dangerous tipping points, even at current levels of warming that are at 1.1 Celsius. Melting of the Greenland and West Antarctic ice sheets resulting in a huge sea level rise, widespread permafrost thaw, collapse of convection in the Labrador Sea, and massive die-off of the tropical coral reefs are being cited. 
Now, once a tipping point is triggered, they say, even if emissions are stopped and temperatures stop rising, the ice sheets, oceans, rainforests will carry on degrading once you hit that tipping point. Ooh, that's grim. So let's head over to some funny news of the day then. A consignment of 7,000... Okay, I'm going to say this, all right. 7,000 donkey penises. Is it pe- penine? Penises. Estimated to be worth 200 million naira. That's 478,000 U.S. dollars or 416,000 pounds. The U.S. is... U.S. dollar is that much above the pound now? Um, It has been intercepted by Nigeria's customs and service people at the airport in Lagos. The 16 sacks of animal parts had been found in the animal export section of Murtala Muhammad Airport with Hong Kong as their destination. According to Sambo Dangaladima, the Nigeria Customs Service Area Commander. The official told journalists that it was the fetid smell coming from those sacks, those duffel bags that aroused the suspicion of authorities. All kinds of puns there. All kinds. All right, this day in history, back in 1791, Washington, D.C., The capital of the United States is named after President George Washington. In 1923, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, the founder of the Republic of Turkey, founds the Republican People's Party. In 1948, Kim Il-sung declares the establishment of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, better known as North Korea today. In 1965, the United States Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, is established. Then in 2015, Queen Elizabeth became the longest reigning monarch of the United Kingdom and obviously remained so until her death just yesterday. That'll do it for your headlines this Friday, September 9th. You are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Right, uh, the funny news of the day, Laith. Right. Producer Laith. Quite some funny news there. Yeah. The smell. Huh. Gave it away. All right. A bag of donkey... Things. Donkey parts. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I think he snuck that one in there before I, I left home because I looked at all this stuff beforehand. This one got in there. Mm-hmm. So uh, we'll leave it right there and let us uh, digest the funny news. Because I can only imagine being in the airport and walking oh, past. I don't, I don't want to. I don't, don't want to know the smell. I don't, don't want to even uh, imagine. Like, I don't think you need a, a sniff, a, one of those special, like, I mean, know, a bomb sniffing dog. I mean, take a bath is bad enough. I can't imagine Ooh. a donkey. Good oh, Lord. Yeah. Help. Mm. All right. Yeah. With that, let's get that image out of your head. Palette cleanser. We'll be back right after the break. You are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. We'll be right back. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. 
Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. I am Manila Chan, joined with guest co-host this week, Malik Abdul, the atomic MAGA, who's also got his MAGA hat on, which, by the way, if you can see on Rumble, is actually the cutest MAGA hat I have seen thus far. I'm that like, dude. They're usually, like, really just plain old red with the white writing, but this is actually very fashionable. It's giving me truck stop vibes. <laughs> and, All of right. course... M. Reese Everson, the Vice of Legal East, she's joining us. Uh, we'll have these two for a couple more days, uh, Monday and Tuesday, before Jamal comes back from his European holiday. Um, I wonder if it's like a Griswold European Christmas or whatever it was in the 80s. I'm probably dating myself beyond you two, but I remember that as a kid. Uh, but normally Jamal would have his, his uh, rant right now, his monologue, but since... That's not really my thing. I'm making it open mic. Well, so, I have Malik, something to talk about then. I'm glad you do. So on in in I would say reassuring, comforting, and all of that news, I was home. And for those of you out there who don't know, I own a pit bull, a red-nosed pit bull named Magnus. He's about 90 pounds. Uh, spoiled baby he is. And as I was walking Magnus yesterday, uh one of the guys who works on the property where I live, he said, man, I've been meaning to talk to you. I, I saw you on Sputnik. And I was like, what? Really? Now, understand. I live in D.C. I don't live in the ritzy part of D.C. I live in like Southside D.C., like <laughs> Southside, Southside D.C. So I never expect anyone to recognize me forget media, but definitely on radio. And he was specific. He said Sputnik. And so we got into this long conversation about how he, for the past three months, has been listening to fault lines. Oh, no kidding. And that he, you know, and it was a larger conversation. He talked about how he's learned so much within that short period of time. And it was an entire um, discussion about how the things that are discussed here he never hears anywhere else. I mean, we got That's into, true. you talk about got into the weeds. We got into the weeds of Ukraine. You had a real conversation. Oh, it was a real conversation. And so the irony is, is that we've seen each other for years. Right, right. And oh. we, you know, just really in passing, just never really. Yeah, whatever. like, what's up, man? You know, my dude, what's up? And so for us to have this conversation and, you know, not only was he listen, did he regularly listen, he's probably listening now. And I told him but I wouldn't say his listener. name. Yes. But what did you ask him what drove him to, to or how he found I don't even Radio know Spinet? how he found it, but he said it was just so random. But he had begotten he had gotten so just pretty much disgusted with American media. And so the things that, you know, after the um, the operation, uh, military operation um, in Ukraine, he said he just realized that there was such a like a, a blackout. Of, and everybody was saying the same thing. Yes. Like American media, everybody was saying the same thing. And so he said, he started listening. He said, man, I learned so much about international politics, <laughs> said stuff I never even cared to learn. And he was literally the he, things that we— sparked his interest. Oh, I mean, and so, you know, I was floored. So I, and it was, it was such a great conversation. And I told him, I said, well, you know what? I'm going to mention this tomorrow because you have to understand how surprised I was to even meet someone where I live who right. listens, you know, to much of anything, but definitely <laughs> Sputnik. Like right. it, it was such a it was it was a confirmation that, wow, we really do great work here. And it and, matters. 
And it matters. And it's not just, and so not only did he listen to Sputnik, he is a Trump supporter. Really? He's a Republican. I'm like, whoa, I've seen you all of these years. In and Southeast. I've, now and you I've can never... invite him to have a beer. <laughs> In Southeast. Yeah. And, and I know that there, I mean, there are other people. Um, I've met people, even neighbors, who, even though they may not be Republican, they've told me, well, you know, I voted for Trump. You know, so that does Out of party. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that does it. Like that part right there doesn't surprise me. But to have seen him for years and never, we never had a conversation about politics or anything. And to have it be about this in particular. When, and because he said he had been definitely listening over the past week. But he's like, he's, hey, I know you from. He's like, man, Sputnik? I've been meaning to tell you. And I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? So that, you know, for the rumblers all know this. And he's a rumbler. Like he's, he, oh, he's a rumble. Okay, yeah, he's gonna, a rumbler. Wow. He's tuning in on the no, radio. No, he is a rumbler. Um, you know, probably doesn't come in or anything. But just to know that but there are people yeah. out there who appreciate what we do. And we're not just, you know, shooting the stuff. Yeah. You know, we're talking about substantive things that people care about. And the acknowledgement that you have to go elsewhere, international even, yes. To hear about things that are going on. I mean, we in your own country. You would have thought that he was here with us as we were talking about Ukraine. Right. Like you would have thought that he was. I mean, because we had a whole. He was in it. Oh, we had a whole full blown conversation. He's like, man, I was telling my wife. Uh, you know, just so for me, just to kind of have that conversation, it was like reassurance and like you know, it's kind of steeled my spine even to know that there are people. You know, our reach may not be as, you know, as large as some of the other neighbors were, but we're actually reaching people. And at the end of the, the day, critically. critically, and not just the cheap stuff. Right. You know, not just the stuff that trends online, mm -hmm. talking about substantive things. And so to meet someone who had that perspective and whether, you know, I didn't care if he didn't vote for Trump or not, the fact that he listens yeah. To and the gave show. It a chance. You know yeah. what? And, and you brought up a point, and I have to give someone a shout out who just logged in. Um, a, about two years ago, when I was on TV doing international news, I had a, a person reach out to me and say, I was at a bar in China doing business, and I looked up and I heard a voice that I'd heard from high school, and it was a young woman that I had gone to high school with from Metro Detroit. Her name is Blair. And she was just like, I saw you on the news and I'm in China and it just blew my mind. And so it's amazing how you, so good morning, Blair. It's amazing how you can, you know, just cross pollinate, I guess. And people, you never know where someone will be and what path life will take them on and where you'll catch up with them. It's just, it's awesome. So I just wanted to give a shout out. Yeah, it's the, the reach of alternative media has grown exponentially. And I believe, I mean... Uh, I would say, yes, it's part and parcel of the mainstream media hating on anything that's Russian-related at this time, for obvious reasons. Fair enough. But barring, barring that, you know, the, the Russia-Ukraine stuff happening, barring that, I think the mainstream media also hates on this all this type of alternative media in general is because it's stealing eyes and ears yes. away from them in general. And yeah. they don't have the bandwidth. Right. Yeah, and I they believe. can't control it. They, right. they try. They can't control it and they don't have the bandwidth to do it and do a good job at it. First of all, we come in and I would say, in my opinion, that we are 
researched, that we are, you know, it's it's journalism, the actual core of what journalism actually is. It's critical thinking and yeah. conversation. All of that. Which I think is very lacking yep. in mainstream media, especially because the the guests that they bring on, you know, if you're Fox, you know what to expect you know out what of you're a getting. Fox guest. If you're watching MSNBC or CNN, same thing. you know, it's going to be an echo chamber mm-hmm. over and over of the same, you know, tropes, the same thoughts, the same ideologues. And here, particularly on this show, I would say in general on Sputnik, but particularly on this show, I mean, it is called Fault Lines. Like, Jamaral and I often debate and fight. I mean, we're still friends at the end of it because we don't cancel each other because right. of whatever he thinks or whatever I think. Um, sometimes we overlap. Other times we are polar opposites on things. But that is the whole point, right, Right, is to have critical conversation and discussion. And respectful dissent. Yes. And, and that's why the um, podcasting has become popular. That's why YouTube is a huge vehicle for people now because they don't— It was. Not anymore, well, I would say. With I would the say censoring Rumble, that's going on. Rumble is where it's at for free speech. But it's, but it's just the people who have been, you know, feel like they're on the outside of things, but to have platforms where people, they make a name for themselves talking about things that they don't hear elsewhere and oh, bringing sure. in different perspectives. And at the end of the day, I think that that's the stuff that matters. You know, no. Echo chambers, you know what you're going to get. You know exactly what you're going to get. But being able to engage, be respectful and disagreeable. Well, I mean, just yesterday we had— um Local caller Malik here in D.C. Yes, he dissented on what we had to say, and that's he absolutely fine. did, and that's totally fine. I don't fine. have a problem with it, right? I'm totally okay. Yeah. with somebody, you know, not happy with how we covered something, and them sharing it, and we have a discussion about. It. I mean, if, if we had more time, I would have had a discussion with him, but um, but yeah, that's that's the whole point of this type of alternative media, and that's not allowed right. in mainstream media. You cannot dissent from what they tell you to mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. You cannot do that. It's not allowed. They will silence you. I mean, we'll talk about this um, a little bit later in the show. Uh, but we're like, for example, Jeff Bezos on Twitter fighting with a college professor at Carnegie Mellon. Um, that's silencing dissenting voices, right? You're one of the one of the debatably between one of the top two richest men in the world. Yeah, and you are definitely top three. You're fighting. <laughs> You're fighting some college professor at Carnegie Mellon, Mellon in Pennsylvania. Speaking from her experience as a as a woman of as a right a colonized of, descent, right? So silencing her like that's he he controls the Washington Post. He does. He owns and the Washington Post. And it was a big Post. thing when he actually took ownership of the Washington Post. What would it, you know, what would the Washington Post turn out? And for me, I was like, well, the Washington Post is not going to change. And I don't think it's changed very much since, in, in a good way, I don't think it's changed very much since he I feel took like, ownership yes, of it. I would, I, I would say growing up, I respected the Washington Post a, a lot. Um, same with the New York Times. Um, but nowadays, I, I would say— I think social media. I think because, you know, we're in the age of social media journalism. And so the, the journalists that we used to trust— you know, back in the day, whether or not there was a Gwen Eiffel or, they you know, some, some of the lions, Literally. they no longer, like journalists now, they trend. They 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 do this in for order clicks. to trend. It's for clicks. Yeah, yes. Click you bait. want your So name you say something provocative because it trends. And if, like Jim Acosta. And if it trends well, then that means that the outlets will invite you on mm-hmm. to talk about that provocative things. Yeah. It, and that it, integrity, the journalistic integrity be be dogged. I don't. I don't know if I can say damned, but yeah, you can. Journalistic <laughs> integrity be damned. Um, a lot of times, these, you know, it's 
just one regurgitation, um, two lack of actually investigation. And, and it's unfortunate that people are just listening to essentially talking heads versus people who are actually doing the legwork and doing the research, getting people who are sources from all over the world. They're getting the same, you know, two, three, four people. So it's yeah, unfortunate. Absolutely. And, and at least here, like I will, I will tell you when, you know, it's my opinion, I will say, well, I think or it's my opinion that right. I will make it very clear that I'm editorializing something versus when I deliver something that's like, here's what happened last night. Queen Elizabeth died. I didn't make that's that up. But that's the actual news. <laughs> There's no order editorializing but on there, it. But you can't differentiate when you look or listen to mainstream media. And I suppose that's why the man, you're uh, yeah. building maintenance. No, maintenance. Now he's not a maintenance guy. No. He just works in the, works oh, oh, on the okay. property. The, uh, the man that works there. Yeah, he, um, yeah. That why he probably flipped the switch and went somewhere else because you can't hear He listens anything. to us every day. Good for him. All right. Let's leave that right there because we're going to talk about, you know, I just mentioned Queen Elizabeth. We're going to talk about Queen Elizabeth um, and more so the monarchy of the UK, the legacy uh, that she presided over, which is really up for debate right now. We're going to be talking about that after the break with our friend Robert Patillo of the Rainbow Push Coalition. He's a civil rights attorney, so sit tight. We'll be right back with our friend Robert Patillo here on Fault Lines on Sputnik. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines. You are listening to Reese, the Vise of Legalese along with Manila Chan and Malik Abdul, Manila Chan. Um, We are excited this morning because we have a guest who is going to get into some incredible topics about just the the, the breaking news of yesterday. But before we bring him in, Mr. Robert Patillo, I wanted to do a quick, uh, a little quick uh, introduction. And it goes like this. It's a poem by Leslie Honoré, and it goes like this. May the winds of independence blow over all nations colonized by the monarchy, by Nicole Waddington. May our memory and nostalgia never cloud the truth. May we hold intention, our entertainment, our fascination, our indoctrinated fairy tale culture with the legacy of colonization, imperialism, the transatlantic slave trade, the sun that never set on oppression. May we set the crown and the woman. And as we bury an era, may we never bury history or the truth, freedoms and reparations yet to be received. God save the Queen. And with that, we are having on as our guest, Robert Patillo, attorney and political commentator, as well as my friend, Robert Patillo. Bobby, are you there? I'm here. How are you guys doing? Good, Good morning. Morning, hey, morning, morning. Well, so you guys are having a house party, I just found out about. <laughs> yes. Well, we we were going to invite you, but I don't think the other camera works. Or <laughs> Just throw your pajamas on and roll up here. We'll be here. Who knows where he is? He could be in Baltimore, I know. Atlanta. You never know. Yeah, he, was, he wasn't coming down here. <laughs> I'm not, not, not a chance, no. <laughs> not this early. So, Bobby, what's going on? Are you uh, currently wearing your sackcloth and ashes and, and uh, going through your 10 days of mourning? Uh, uh, no. And, uh, you know, 
I, I can't describe how much I do not understand people being upset over a 96-year-old uh, passing, but I do appreciate this opportunity to have a real conversation about the legacy of colonialism, because the same way that we uh, have been lied and misled about the history of America, uh, about 90% of the colonized world uh, have been taught the same fairy tales and nonsense uh, to justify European mercantilism, to justify imperialism uh, uh, that we have been taught. If you go back and look at, uh, just compare date to date, things that were going on to African-Americans here in the United States of America, and look at what was going on to our brothers in the Caribbean and uh, Central and South America on the continent, uh, Southeast Asia and uh, India, etc., uh, they line up almost directly, whether it's the 1860s here, the 1860s push for nationalism in Europe, uh, whether it's the fight for civil rights in America in the 1960s or the decolonization struggle uh, in Gola in the 1960s, uh, in, uh, uh, in Africa the same period of time. So I think we should take this period not so much to reflect on the, the woman, but to reflect on the institution of European monarchies, what they've done to the planet, and what needs to be done to reverse 500 years of European domination, uh, which have uh, acted to the dereliction of world culture, language, religion, uh, politics, and, of course, population. Uh, the number of people worldwide who have died in the last thousand years uh, because Charlemagne's grandsons couldn't get along, I think is mind-boggling, and we have to start putting that in perspective if we really want to heal as a planet. That's a pretty fair assessment, I would say. I mean, I Agreed. I, I know a lot of um, these former colonies of the of the crown are issuing, you know, sad, remorseful remarks on Twitter or at least making their official statements. Um, almost, I don't know, maybe it's just out of respect for the, the person because it's, I mean, I think you you point out a very... Um, a, a very good point there that we have to differentiate between there's the woman herself and the institution of the monarchy, which is separate. And I think it's a it's an important distinction to be made because, I mean, I I don't know. I'm not a royal watcher. I'm not really into that and stuff. Me um, either. I I don't know much about <laughs> Queen Elizabeth as a human being. Um, but I you know for. From what I could tell, I don't think she was herself a colonizer, but the monarchy itself, I think, is a is a fair thing to it's up for grabs to uh, beat up as a piñata um, because, yeah, it has done the monarchy has done horrible things and subjugated people all around the world. Um, because the sun never sets on and the I, Queen's and, Empire. Yeah, and I think probably a good example, um, a good parallel would be as far as like roles in the colonization versus that is a U.S. president, for instance, a modern day U.S. president and the United States history of slavery and oppression. And so it's kind of that sort of thing. Um, U.S. presidents today, they have no role in slavery in the same way that um, Queen Elizabeth, as a pretty much like a figurehead, didn't have a role in the colonialization. But the UK, you know, right. they the did have a role. Yeah, yeah, they absolutely had a role. I'm, so I'm that's probably think that's nope. a, Bobby, I'm going to hit him with the nope this morning. Nope. 
uh, just like <laughs> um, the queen who actually wore a- atop her head and in her royal scepter the Cullinan diamond, uh, a.k.a. the Great Star of Africa, which was stolen from Africa. Pieces were put in the British sovereign crown in her royal scepter and the rest in the royal jewel collection uh, worth about $400 million. This woman walks around with reparations to Africa on her head, in her hand, and literally knows that this money could be, this this value could be restored back to the people that it was taken from. Then we'll go to history. Um, Yes, there are things in history that did not have anything to do with her. She was born in 1905, and we know that when uh, Britain abolished slavery in 1833, that they actually did uh, reparations um, back to the slave owners um, who lost their property to a total of $2.4 billion by today's standards. That's $2.4 billion in today's currency in 2022. So we know that there was great wealth transfer due to slavery. We know that those diamonds and things were stolen. So people were stolen. Land was, I mean, uh, sorry, things were stolen. And Africa has been literally bankrupted as a result. Come on, Robert Patillo. Look, this is the thing about the the queen. The truth is we don't know much about her or what she did on a day-to-day basis. I don't know what her voice sounded like or (laughs) hobbies. But what I do know is that when you, just as Malik said, when you step into the office of the presidency of the United States of America, you immediately become a war criminal because that's what the office entails. That's what you have to do. As much as we all loved Obama, he bombed a lot of weddings. Uh, He killed a lot of innocent people for no apparent reason, uh, but he did with a smile and a tan suit on, so we liked him. Uh, Similar to the Queen of England. That if you look at the things that were under her as the head of the British monarchy, but in addition to that, the things that she could have done that were not done, uh, I I don't think there's a reason people are dancing in the streets of many countries worldwide. If you look at Irish Twitter, uh, their celebrations are even more powerful than, uh, than black Twitter. I do start uh, start to think, well, what would happen if black Twitter, Irish Twitter, uh, Indian Twitter all got together and started demanding some changes from the European world? Because when we talk about monarchy, it's not just the British monarchy. Uh, you, if you look at what King Leopold did in the Congo for the Dutch monarchy, if you look at uh, what the French did in Haiti and in Angola, uh, from the French monarchy. If you look at the uh, Spanish conquistadors down in Central America uh, last weekend, where people are still dressing up like colonial uh, Spanish subjects, real damage and trauma has been done to earth by white people. And it's nothing wrong with us taking a moment to say, look, I'm sorry that the old lady is dead, but this should be the last dying breath of uh, European uh, colonial power. And at the end of the day, I think, uh, you know, I'm a nerd, so I think a little bit about Star Wars. Uh, At the end of uh, the first trilogy, when they threw the emperor down the tunnel and he died, nobody cried for him. Remember that the empire... It's the bad guys. That's who Darth Vader worked for. The rebel imperial scum 
Those were the people in India. Those were the people in Africa. Those were us over here who were fighting back against those empires. So I, I don't see this need to kind of lionize the woman because I don't know literally a single accomplishment she had in her entire life besides wearing a hat. But I do think that this is the time where we need to be petitioning before the United Nations, before the World Bank, before the International Monetary Fund, between the World Court uh, at The Hague, for there to be global reparations for what these uh, European monarchical systems have done, because the hundreds of millions of people that died around this globe in the last 500 years because white people wanted to move a sign five miles that way to, say, France, and then move it five ways back the other five miles back the other way, 10 years later, say, Germany, is irreplicable. And I don't think that we fully have understood, because we're still in the midst of it, just the damage and destruction done by white people to this planet. And unless maybe some aliens come to help out, it's going to take the rest of us uniting together to try to push back against that. But Bobby, Bobby, the the queen, at least, I mean, I also, admittedly, I think many of us here do not really know anything about Elizabeth, she the, liked the dogs, woman. She horses, and bagpipes. Interesting. And I had heard that she drove ambulances during World War II. Yeah, her That's... father her father wouldn't let her actually join um the the, the war, war effort. The war effort and he conceded to allowing her to actually um drive the army tanks. I mean yeah, there's yeah. not a whole lot we can we, I mean she was a very tight-lipped uh, yeah. individual, right? That not, was, yeah, that was the role. That's that's the role and she from what I could tell largely uh remained apolitical. apolitical. Yes. Um and so with that though doesn't that, the fact that she was largely apolitical, we didn't know where she stood on anything, it's because she's a figurehead. She doesn't, she didn't really wield any real power. And with that, why then is the world so enamored or in love with her? I mean, is it because she's apolitical? Is it because, you know, there's some weird fascination with royals? I mean, I don't know, because truth be told, I bet if I was, you know, 300 years back, a royal sub- a subject somewhere in England or wherever in one of her colonies, not this queen because I don't think she was alive that long, but if I was a British subject, I'm sure I would be, I would have been burned at the stake for heresy or being a witch or something because, you know, I'm kind of mouthy. But apart from that, <laughs> apart from that, um, I don't think she wielded any power. So why, I mean, maybe that's why people really took to this queen, apart from her being there for 70 years? Well, a couple points. One, part of the reason that people take to this queen and other European queens is because we've been fed nothing but white supremacy and nonsense from the minute that we're born. Um, You don't get out of the womb before they stick a Disney pacifier in your mouth and start talking about, ooh, maybe the prince will come and wish you away to his castle and make you his slave, I mean princess. Um, for uh, for the rest of your life. That's what we start teaching little girls, like literally from the minute they are born. Not my daddy. Uh, you know, thank, thank God for that. But if you look at the entire concept of Disney movies and uh, the reason you wear white dresses to your wedding because of Queen Victoria took a picture in the 1850s, or the reason you wear a wedding ring is because the beers and some hustlers got together and figured out we can sell you some polished rocks for like, your yearly salary, but it's all about the white supremacist brainwashing structure to make you believe. Uh, Think about the hubris that it takes for you to look at billions of people and say, 
God told me that me and my family get to be in charge. Well, you're blue-blooded. Come on now. Well, just, just think about for a second the mental gymnastics going on in your head to think that literally God came down to talk to you and your family. And he said, hey, you see, everybody, you're in charge of them. You're like right here with me, divine right of kings. And I think the reason Elizabeth has been so lionized because she came to power, as you said, after World War II, after uh, and became a symbol for the reconstruction of Britain, uh, just along with, with Churchill and cigars, um, that she the first real television queen that we've ever had, that the royal family has been followed in ways by the British press and tabloids, uh, the same way that we follow the Kardashians now, that's the way we follow them in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and even up into the 50s. So the reason she's held in such high self-esteem, the same reason people think Kim Kardashian's a beautiful woman, because you see it all the time, because it's in front of you all the time and forced to fed into you. And I think once we start breaking down that white supremacist power structure, breaking down that mental enslavement that still goes on around the globe, uh, then you'll start seeing fewer people holding this level of affection. The fact that they still wear powdered wigs in the Supreme Court of Zimbabwe tell you just how deep this rot and infestation has gone, uh, that you can get wonderful French pastries in Southeast Asia. That's not a good thing. That is a sign of people who have been completely destroyed, their culture eradicated, their gods killed, their history wiped from the face of the earth. And I think that is why you're seeing so many people celebrating worldwide. And I'm hoping that this is the moment that the black and brown and colonized people of the world decide uh, maybe we should go back and get our jewelry back from Europe, and we'll do it in a nice way. We'll go to the courts and get it back, uh, as opposed to the way that the Europeans got it, which was through war, genocide, destruction, uh, magic tricks, lies, enslavement, rape, murder, abuse, genocide, etc. Because when I see this quote-unquote empire, I see nothing different than Darth Vader uh, when I see the queen. Yeah, well, and that's actually, you raised some good points. And I think that, you know, we... We can, and I and I absolutely just, you know, reiterate the fact that we should separate um, the queen because pretty much that her role is ceremonial. Um, and, you know, as you said, we love the idea of kings and queens and princes and uh, prince, princes and prince. Um, we love that. We, roma we romanticize this, whether it's in our movies or in our, even in our literature. Um, the, these, this is what we do. But I think in the case of Queen Elizabeth, I mean, there are a lot of things that we don't know. But, you know, in her ceremonial role, the relationships that she established with many of the African nations, the relationship that she even had with Mandela himself, I believe when her father died, I think she was in Kenya at the time when she learned of her own father's death and then, you know, she ultimately became the queen. You know, so there are a lot of, um, you know, things about her personally in that ceremonial capacity that I think people actually like. So the pomp and circumstance, I pretty much sure, you know, as, as people may uh, talk about it now, but do you know the number of eyes that were on television when Princess Diana married uh, Prince Charles? It was a similar thing when Meghan Markle married... Harry, you know, these are, and the American, we couldn't stop talking about it. I mean, so I think that that level of it is, Alan, but, but I also think, I don't think that we should have had to wait until the Queen's death to have many of the conversations that you're having now. This doesn't, you know, the, the monarchy doesn't end 
because she's now deceased, it continues. And so I think those efforts, if you want to, you know, get behind an effort to um, get those jewels back or pay reparations to Africa or many of the other places that were colonized, we can actually do that whether whether um, King Charles exists or not. I think that's something that we can do. Can, let me add something real briefly that I just learned uh, because I was it, it's forced down my throat in, in all the mainstream media um, and the royal watchers. What I just learned was, okay, as we know, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, you know, they stepped down from their roles or whatever. Right. And because Harry, and again, I'm not an expert in this stuff. Would have never been king. He was never <laughs> destined to be king, right? So he could flit off and, and marry an American, just like his, would it be his great uncle who, uh, king, he would have been King Edward, but he, um, he denounced the throne or whatever because he wanted to marry an American. That's what led to Queen Elizabeth's dad becoming king, right. King George. Uh, that's And that's how Queen Elizabeth became queen was because George died. and then He abdicated. He abdicated because I guess it would be Harry's great uncle, I guess, right? Um, so he left to marry an American. And here's Harry marrying an American. And the two children that Harry and Meghan had were not prince and princess, um, Lilibet and Archie, I think, are their kids, um, that they're like Duke or whatever. The whatever Dukes. the Duke and Duchess or something, the of kids. Sussex. Mm-hmm. Because of, because now that that Prince Charles has ascended the throne to become King Charles III, that now, because of that, their birth, their, their rights of birth, those kids now officially become prince and princess, whereas they didn't have that title yesterday, mm-hmm. right? And now because the they new... were the great-grandchildren. Right. So that's how it is. It so was... now they've ascended because they're grandchildren and not great-grandchildren of the right. throne. So now the conversation is, well, they. this is the first time in British history that mixed-race children are officially royals mm-hmm. by blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. That's a, that's Yeah, that's true. But again, this is just, you know, it's still... No one cares, cares. I don't get, yeah, I don't get But it. I, I will say this now, um, because, you know, we may feel a certain way here in America, but over there, they, like, they love their queen. Yeah, and, and they understand it's that idolized. it's very, yeah, and they understand that it's very ceremonial. If you actually go back and look at, and there are just, you know, discussions on whether or not it was true, but the um, Queen Elizabeth had a different posi- position on um, the sanctions against, uh, or during the apartheid area, she actually had a different position than Margaret Thatcher because the UK, they did not join in the effort in um, sanctioning um, against apartheid. They did not, but all of the other nations did. I think there were probably 48 or 49, and then the UK, they stood out. And so the queen, at least according to the people, you know, her press secretary and people like that, is that she was on the other side of Margaret Thatcher because Margaret Thatcher um, supported um, Britain not actually joining in on those sanctions. So, you know, it's some history there, but at the end of the day, it's very ceremonial. But, Robert, we know for a fact that there are several, several people who are still holding on to the vestiges of colonialism. Why, if you turn on any movie on a Nigerian channel, you'll see uh, women wearing blue contacts and blonde wigs and wearing uh, makeup. Oh, that's painted. everywhere. That's yeah. Asians, too. <laughs> and saying that, oh, she's the fair one and, and, think, and craziness like that. So we know that the vestiges of colonialism 
are steeped and entrenched. So you will have people that are beholden to this image of nobility and blue bloodedness. But at the same time, when you put the shoe on the other foot and you have people speak out against who who are the descendants of colonialism um, and maybe from because I think the royal uh, I'm sorry, they, they only there were only 26 places that they did not that their kingdom did not colonize only 26. Um, and so we know that people have been speaking out and they're not beholden all, uh, the rest of the world to this this idea of the queen and, and caring and being concerned about her passing. There was a woman who spoke out against um, who a Carnegie Mellon professor who wished that the queen suffered an excruciating death for being queen of an empire that was responsible for the death of her people. She spoke out and Jeff Bezos has come for blood for her and, and, and wants her fired. Right, Bobby? Well, yeah, it, it's part of the, the power structure which exists. And this is part of breaking that down. I, I, people have to understand how deeply and thoroughly you are brainwashed to exist within Western civilization or within the sphere of European influence. Uh, the fact that every video game you played as a kid, you were rescuing a princess from a uh, castle plays into this understanding of belief and brainwashing into monarchical and empirical systems. Um, the fact that every time you watch a historical drama, for example, if you watch a movie about ancient Rome, are the people speaking Latin? Are those people speaking with Italian accents? Or do they all have British accents for some reason? Uh, if you watch a movie about Middle Earth, do they all have British accents? If you watch a movie about space Nazis, do they all have British accents for some reason? I, I mean, if you watch a movie, if you watch a show, I never got that. Yeah, if you watch a movie about dragons and, like, I don't know, wizards from another dimension. Yes. British accent. I never understood that. Yeah, it's all about indoctrinating, pushing this conceptualization, that divine right of kings, into your brain very deeply. And as Malik was saying with the, the nice lady who passed away, uh, I'm sure that she secretly uh, disagreed with apartheid. Did she give the money back? Come on, Bobby. Yeah, I, I understand that she may have secretly, you know, I'm sure she took a picture in a taxi at some point in time or ambulance during the war um, and maybe like drove it around the block or something. I, uh, but does that mean that she was willing to give that to India uh, after they are partitioned in 1947, after hundreds of millions of Indian um, people from the subcontinent gave their lives for the British Empire during World War One and World War Two? For no apparent reason, something that had absolutely nothing to do with them. Archduke Ferdinand had nothing to do with people in Mumbai or in Delhi. But millions died under this banner of the crown. So after the war, why weren't they not, instead of being partitioned, why weren't they set up with the actual government that they wanted? If you look at the Middle East and the partitioning of the Ottoman Empire after World War One, uh, and the things that the British did there to prop up Zionists through, throughout the region, instead of working within the ar architecture that previously existed in the 1876 agreement, the British Empire was instrumental in this. This is why, while the um, the Queen was on the throne. Oh, Robert, Robert, can I just end... Because we're going to actually have to be um, getting at yeah yeah. But just to point out the things that you're, I, I'm not sure if the queen herself is responsible for that. So some of the things that I that's why I said that it's important to point out her ceremonial role versus like the prime minister. Um, sure, the 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 Britain they can actually uh, pay reparations in the same way that the United States can. 
but they haven't. But I think it's necessary, and I think many of the things even Bezos was pushing back against is that we can have a lot of discussions about Queen Elizabeth and the monarchy and all of that, but there is a level of decency that I think we should expect. And people, you know, they could say whatever they want online, but I don't think that people have to be indecent um, regards to her when it comes to her, and not just her, but anyone's death. So I think those are just things that people need to be mindful about, that you can separate the monarchy and all of the history and be decent at the time that someone dies. Because we saw that, remember, with Herman Cain, when Herman Cain died, everyone danced on Herman Cain's grave, not because Herman Cain was a bad person, but because Herman Cain was a Republican. But so I'm I think we just need to kind of add that type of context when we're having these discussions. It, it's okay to be decent. It's well, just okay. Ruju Anya, the associate professor from Carnegie Mellon, her point is is that they weren't decent to her people, the people that her uh, that were colonized by Europe when they came in and ravaged the country. They weren't decent. Am Bobby, I right, Bobby? Bobby, we got thirty seconds for your last word on that. Well, you know, I think the best quote comes from former White House advisor Stephen Miller. He says, Her Majesty's passing is not only a tragedy for England, Britain, and the UK, the Commonwealth, but decent people everywhere. Elizabeth was our last link to the lost magic of an age of glory, radiating our world with light after the life of service. She will rest. <laughs> That's the way white supremacists think. Good people. Fair-minded people should be loving this queen and that the magic of the good old days of colonialism are over and those are the people who are crying in the streets. I can't join them, but I think we should take this as an opportunity to overthrow what remains of the European millennium. Uh, I got to jump in, Bobby, and leave it right there. Robert Hillard Patillo, the second executive director of the Rainbow Push Coalition, uh, civil rights attorney, thank you for that. You're listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America in the belly of the beast in Washington, D.C. Good morning and happy Friday. You are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for joining us on Rumble 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the DC Metro. We're also in Kansas City at 1140 AM, 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM on your radio dial. I am the Durack conservative wearing my Make America Great Again trucker's hat here in studio with the Vice of Legalese, M. Reed. Everson, and of course, our permanent host, the Vixen of Veritas, the Thrilla in Manila, Chan. This is the show that dares to go there. This is Fault Lines. Oh, and did we go there? Leave it to Bob Patillo to go there. And I actually like the fact that he, it, it was it was a broader discussion than what we've just normally seen on right, Twitter. Rather than just like hating on the queen, throw yeah. some shade on the queen, screw this old white lady. It yeah. wasn't that. It was yeah. a broader discussion about what her role meant, not in the, mon not in, the in lady. The UK, the you know, Great the Britain, the monarchy, I think right. all of those things are relevant. That's and fair. That's fair game. Which is what, you know, I push back against is that we don't have to be indecent we when discussing. We can be civil. 
her. Absolutely. Like it's a you can someone died. It's okay to right. say, oh wow, that's horrible that someone died. Right. That's aside from well, the history. Know, hold on, Reese is giving me eyes. But now obviously I am not a member of Black Twitter, but there was something trending about Viola Davis because she she's playing the role in the the movie the Dahomey um, the Dahomey tribe was a group of women right. warriors in Africa yes. and they were responsible for slaughtering so, and enslaving so she yeah. i guess tweeted out something decent and civil about and the they, queen pa- queen passing and black twitter just jumped all over her she deleted her tweet yeah and, and that had nothing to do with um colonization as far as the Dahomey tribe this is something it, this that was is an part internal of, conflict. That, yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's something that's part of history, and even the history of like slavery. You know, slavery itself. If you actually go back in history, yes, there were African tribes that kidnapped and sold slaves. Their own. That's part yeah, of history. People, yeah. But it's okay to kind of have those. You know, I think it's context matters in a lot of things. But I saw that she had to delete her tweet. And right. I wonder what's going to happen when the movie comes out. She got because, so much backlash. And Viola Davis yes. is, I mean, just one of the greatest actresses, I think, out there yes. right now. Yes. And, I and because she was decent. Really? That she's a great actress? I wouldn't say that at all. Oh, I definitely I think she's a great actress. I thought her portrayal of Michelle Obama was ghastly. I didn't see that one. But it was, it was on a I, I didn't like her, her The pursing facial, of the lips. It was ghastly. Yeah, I didn't like that. But I think she's a great, I mean, I think she's She's an it's awesome interesting actress. to me that they call certain people when they need certain roles played. I feel as though she's called on upon for the roles um, that we really don't need to see more of. I, I feel as though a Felicia Rashad or a um, Angela Bassett, who has played the queen, um, who has played Malcolm X's wife or mother, who has played um, the mother in Black Panther, who has played um, Very Angela roles. Bassett. She plays a different type of role, but the roles that we need to see, I feel like, in, unfortunately, Viola Davis, they call her when they, they have roles that no one should play. Well, <laughs> I disagree with that. But we have some news. Uh, Let's go to our national domestic news. Here in the belly of the beast, Washington, D.C., D.C.'s Mayor Muriel Bowser declared a public emergency on Thursday over the crisis stemming from the arrival of thousands of immigrants into the U.S. Capitol from Texas and Arizona. The emergency plan includes establishment of an Office of Migrant Services It's a subordinate agency under the Department of Human Services. The mission of the agency will be to provide support for incoming migrants. Surprise, surprise. We may have some affordable housing here to work on, but whatever. Steve Bannon arrived at a courthouse in New York City on Thursday morning to surrender to New York State prosecutors over fraud charges. Bannon and three associates raised more than 20 Five million to help fund Donald Trump's signature border wall, but on GoFundMe. Two of his associates actually pledged, pled guilty to fraud charge, charges in 2020, and Bannon himself has been accused of pocketing, surprise, one million in cash from the raise funds. Bannon obviously has dismissed the charges against him, saying Tuesday that authorities were trying to prosecute him on phony charges and alleging that he was being persecuted by New York District Attorney Alvin Bragg. On Thursday, the U.S. Coast Guard responded to a massive fire that broke out on the surface of Lake Larry. 
quoting, the pipeline has been secured, so says the U.S. Coast Guard in a statement. Now, the cause of the explosion is still currently being investigated. But according to one version, a barge broke loose and hit a natural gas pipeline, which could have triggered the explosion. A county official in Las Vegas, Nevada, I wonder what party does he belong to, is facing murder, she wrote, charges after he was arrested on Thursday, suspected of stabbing to death a journalist whose critical reporting may have cost him re-election. Clark County Public Administrator Robert Tellis was taken into custody on Wednesday and charged with the killing of a Las Vegas Review-Journal reporter, Jeff German. Police and tactical gear surrounded Tellis at his home on Wednesday afternoon, shortly after he was spotted entering the premises wearing a hazmat protective suit. He was wheeled out of the building on a stretcher and loaded into an ambulance just four hours later. Queen Elizabeth, Britain's longest reigning monarch, has died at the age of 96. National mourning period has started in the UK, with Sky News reporting that it will likely last for 10 days. The Pentagon has committed 92 million to replenish the US military stock of M982 Excalibur, a 155 millimeter artillery sh um, shell with an effective firing range of up to 57 kilometers. Bloomberg reports citing a DOD document. The 92 million was spent, quoting, for the procurement of replacement M982 Excalibur munitions transferred to Ukraine in support of the international effort to counter Russian aggression, the document says. If Bloomberg's reporting is accurate, the document is the first direct confirmation that Washington is supplying the shells to Kiev with U.S. officials previously remaining tight-lipped to media questions on the matter. In more international news, on Friday, the Council of the EU adopted a decision to suspend issuing visas between the EU and Russia. The Council said in a statement, the general rules of the visa code will therefore apply also to Russian citizens. The decision will enter into force on the day of its adoption and will apply as of September 12, 2022, and I believe that is on Monday. Classified NATO documents were leaked to the dark web after a massive cyber attack on the Armed Forces General Staff Agency of Portugal. Local news agency Dar Diario de Noticias reported the sale of the dark web hundreds of documents which had been sent to Portugal's officials by NATO was noticed by U.S. cyber intelligence agents who alerted the American embassy in Lisbon, according to sources cited by the publication. After that, the Portuguese government was informed of significant data breach, with a notice on the discovery sent to directly to Prime Minister Antonio Costa in August. And more news. The administration of U.S. President Joe Biden has pledged, surprise, surprise, another $2.2 in long-term military financing to Ukraine and 18 neighbor states and territories, quoting, potentially at risk of future Russian aggression. This is pending approval by Congress 
Secretary of State Antony Blinken revealed on Thursday during an unannounced visit to Kiev. Blinken met with President Volodymyr Zelensky and other senior officials to discuss the details of the 2.2 billion package, of which 1 billion will go to Ukraine. The rest will be divided among regional security partners in order to help them, quote, deter and def defend against emergent threats to their sovereignty and territorial integrity through strengthening, through strengthening their coordination with NATO in combating Russian influence and aggression, according to the State Department. In Earth and Science News, multiple dangerous climate tipping points are at a risk of being triggered if the global temperature rises beyond 1.5 degrees Celsius. Above pre-industrial levels, these new findings have revealed. The study was published in Science on September 9th, warns that Earth is at the risk of passing five dangerous tipping points, even at current levels of warming 1.1 degrees Celsius, melting of the Greenland and West Antarctic ice sheets. This resulting in a huge sea level will rise, widespread permafrost thawed, collapse of convection in the Labrador Sea, and massive die-off of tropical coral reefs, not the coral reefs. Once a tipping point is triggered, explained the authors, even if emissions are stopped and temperatures stop rising, the ice sheets, oceans, or rainforests will carry on degrading for decades. And funny news of the day, oh wowzers. <laughs> a consignment of 7,000 donkey penises, estimated to be worth 200 million Naira, which is about the same as $478,000 US dollars, has been intercepted by Nigeria's customs service at an airport in Lagos. The 16 sacks of animal parts had been found in the animal export section of Murtala Mohammed Airport with Hong Kong as their destination, according to Sambu Dengaladima, the Nigeria Customs Service Area Commander. The official told journalists that it was the fetid smell coming from the sacks that aroused the suspicion of authorities. This day in history, Washington, D.C., the capital of the United States, is named after slave-owning president George Washington. 1923, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, the founder of the Republic of Turkey, founded the Republican People's Party in 1948. Kim Il-sung declares the establishment of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, which is North Korea. In 1975, the U.S. U United States Department of Housing and Urban Development is established. And in 2015, Elizabeth II becomes the longest reigning monarch of the United Kingdom. Those are your headlines for today, September 9th. You are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. All right. I still can't get over the uh, funny news of the day. Oh, gee whiz. I know people try to export some crazy. <laughs> How do you think you could get away oh, with that? Hong Kong, thing. what are y'all doing out there? With those peen, peens. <laughs> What's the, is there a, is there a plural version of this? I, I say peens. 
let's go with peens. Peens. Yeah. Because it's, it's PG. We, it's a family show, yes. right? There are people driving in the car with children yes. right now. We're back to school. Let's go with peens. But isn't that something, though? Another 2.2 billion going to Ukraine and what? Well, I'm sorry, going to um, to finance the effort in Ukraine and 18 neighboring states. Ukraine itself is getting one point bill. I'm sorry, a billion dollars once again. again. How much money have we sent I mean, in the I past think from week? The, we need an executive money manager. Like we were just talking ridiculous. yesterday about 675 million going right. there. It's now just, we're talking about another billion. It's just non Where's the oversight? Checks. This is not sustainable. We're just cutting checks. Every time an American goes over there and kisses the ring. I got some ring, for you, bruh. Yeah. Like, here, bruh. And, and Zelensky, you know, Mr. Hollywood. You know, everybody can go over there. And, you know, I don't want to you know, make an issue out of it. But come on. It's, you, you know, it's Ukraine. And we're continuing to give money. We have a lot of stuff focusing on yeah. that we could be focused on here. Yeah, what I, I really don't get, and, and this is perhaps our, our next guest after the break, Mark, Mark Sloboda, can touch on this for us. What I don't get is why the mainstream narrative and the State Department narrative continues to be that this threat of Vladimir Putin being like the next Adolf Hitler, and he's going to go storming across all of Europe as if Russia wants to, you know, go tear down Berlin and, you know, re-enter Berlin like the Soviet Red Army did during World War II. Like, why does he, why do they keep projecting this narrative? I, I, it makes no sense to me. And ho hopefully Mark Sloboda can clear that up for us. He's going to join us on the other side of this break. Uh, so sit tight, folks. We'll be right back. You are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Fault Lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. I am Manila Chan being joined this week with guest co-host Malik Abdul and Reese Everson. Uh, it's time now to bring in our next guest, Mark Sloboda. He is an international relations and security analyst. You can follow Mark on Twitter at Mark Sloboda one, the number one, Mark Sloboda one. Find him on Facebook at Gramsci. G-R-A-M-S-C-I. Uh, we're going to talk about all the advances, apparently, uh, that the Ukrainian offensive are making uh, across the southern portions uh, since the IAEA uh, have left the Zaporizhia power plant. Um, and, of course, the secret trip. Surprise! From Antony Blinken, who I guess brought with him a big old check a big fat check to give over to Volodymyr Zelensky. Uh, Mark Sloboda, good morning. How are you doing over there? How is Russia handling the death of the queen? Hi, Manila, Malik, Reese. Thanks for having me. It's always an honor to, and a pleasure to be on Fault Lines. And uh, uh, Good morning. Did some, did some old lady in the UK die or something? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, if you turn on... The regular mainstream media news, I mean, it has been wall-to-wall -wall coverage. Enough so that Antony Blinken sneaking over to Kiev has just slid under the radar. Nobody apparently knows about that, but he was over there, and I, th I think he brought with him a big check, um, and he brought some strong words where he basically asserts 
that th- basically it's like he was Ed McMahon handing over this giant check, you know, the publisher's clearinghouse, giving it to Zelensky um, and saying, you know, this is to you know, Zelensky fighting, you know, for democracy and sovereignty and freedom. And the other part of the check is going to go to the European allies, 18 other countries to prevent, you know, Russian aggression, future Russian aggression. Can you define what on earth that could possibly even mean, Mark? Why does he think this? Yeah, uh, first of all, on the whole monarchy thing, isn't that like so 15th century or something? I mean, <laughs> Indeed. Right, we, over here, we got rid of our monarchs and, you know, uh, early 1917, and we haven't had a problem with them since. So, but, you know, hey, if, 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 if it's a big tourist draw for you, you know, hey, whatever, um, you know, I, you know, sometimes you get a Queen Victoria and sometimes you get a King Charles. You know what I mean? Exactly. <laughs> Ain't it the truth? That's that's the luck of the draw when you when it's all based on heredity, uh, you know, heredity. Hey, uh, OK. Yeah. So um, first of all, all of this uh, scaremongering about Russia's aggressive attentions as if Russia hadn't you know, signaled for eight years of the civil conflict in Ukraine and pushed the Minsk Accords to politically reconcile it. And then for months, you know, said, you know, this is a red line. Let's negotiate, you know, uh, NATO expansion. Let's let let's let's sit down. And everything was ignored. And then they go into Ukraine like they made perfectly clear that they would. And and, uh, you know, suddenly Putin is is threatening to take Lisbon. I mean, that's the type of ridiculous uh, rhetoric, but it's necessary. It's necessary to sell the cost of the tens of billions of taxpayer dollars and the added costs of inflation, gasoline prices, energy costs in Europe. You know, it has to be justified by the most extreme, you know, ridiculous World War II analogies. Putin is Hitler. Putin is Satan. Putin is is the dark Sith Lord returned. You know, all of all of all of this nonsense. But, you know, that's it's it's par for the course. Every time the U.S. has an adversary, it tries to paint the leader uh, as some singular evil that must be defeated. Uh, you know, rather than a country whose national interests, you know, conflict with that of U.S. hegemony. Um, this $2.2 billion package uh, coming right on the tails of, of being handed out $675 million. First of all, let's take a look at the, uh, a look at the $675 million worth, right? That sounds like a lot of money. I mean, that, uh, that, that uh, it's not, Okay. Um, if you take a look at the details of this package, what does it include? Uh, a lot of ammunition, right? That, that, that's primarily what it is. Some ammunition, some more ammunition for the uh, few remaining HIMARS systems that the Kiev regime still has. Uh, ammunition and a lousy four howitzers. They're, they're down from the 152 millimeter because they've exhausted all the stocks uh, that they're ready to give up. Uh, across NATO of the howitzers and of the, you know, the artillery shells for them. So now they're reduced to the uh, 105 millimeter artillery rounds, right? And 36,000 artillery rounds, that is a week of the Kiev regime's current ar- ar- uh, artillery expenditure. That is half a day of Russia's current 
artillery expenditure, right? That that is the scale of the conflict that is going on now. So that's that's not a lot. Some uh, uh, more um, harm missiles, which there is absolutely no indication that they have had any success in taking out a single Russian air defense system. And the uh, the you know the testimonies of the pilots and back in Vietnam who used these things, how difficult they are to use without getting yourself shot down out of the sky, these wild weasel pilots and so on. They're, they're, it's not like a fire and forget system or anything like that. It's a very difficult system to use. And there's no indication that Kiev has the aircraft that uh, and pilots that are capable of using this effectively. Um, 150 armored ambulances. Okay, that is useful because they have a lot of casualties. So, so ambulances is useful and 100 Humvees, right? It, okay, some. Th this is not a huge arms package. It is not sustaining. It is not even sustaining Kiev, certainly at the rate of equipment and casualties that they're burning through uh, on these two recently launched uh, uh, counteroffensive, one in the south in Kherson and one in the northeast uh, uh, in the Kharkov Izum area. So this is not a big aid package. The other aid package, this this uh, uh, $2.2 billion, this is $2.2 two billion U.S. taxpayer dollars signed from the White House and sent directly to the U.S. military industrial complex. This is foreign military financing. This is nothing that is going to aid the arm effort in Ukraine. Uh, first of all, half of it is going to European countries, uh, mostly ones that have contributed their own arms uh, to the conflict uh, 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 in Ukraine and for promises to receive uh, 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 substitutions from, from the U.S. And this is the way they're doing it. And for Ukraine, it's a billion, a billion dollars which you can order U.S. military gear that might be ready in two or three years, right? That's, <laughs> and, and one way or another, it is likely that Certainly, the, the largest degree of the fighting in this conflict will probably be over by then, and there's there's no real clear picture at this point how useful a billion dollars in arms ordered now will be uh, for Kiev in two to three or more years. Yeah, so it's quite the back order. Yeah, yeah, it's it's so just not a big deal. Yeah, um, Mark, uh, just a question, shifting to the Battle of Ezium. We, now, so we understand that Ukrainian forces actually have um, captured several towns and villages south of Kharkov. Can you yes. talk about that? Like, what, what happened there? Okay, so there were um, a little over uh, a week and a half ago, Kiev launched their great southern counteroffensive that they had talked about for months. Um, and that was just ground up by Russian artillery uh, and air superiority. And uh, the Kiev regime troops suffered thousands of casualties for essentially no gains. And it was a big fiasco. And they don't like to talk about it. Now, there was a second uh, counteroffensive brewing south of, of Kharkov. Uh, which is a, a northeastern uh, Ukrainian city, um, wh which is 
you know, uh, has a, a significant portion of Russian ethnic population, it must be said, um, just to the south of there. And um, there were warnings, there were indications that Kiev was building troops up there for weeks. For whatever reason, Russia does not seem to have substantially built up their defenses in the area. And what Kiev has done here is basically replicate Russia's tactics in the first weeks of the conflict. They are taking uh, what um, uh, a large number of troops, a lot of them essentially cannon fodder, conscripts and the like, uh, some of them recently trained in the UK for a massive total of three weeks, uh, but and what tanks they have been able to get from Poland. Poland has actually been the biggest supplier of arms to Ukraine. They supplied more than 230 uh, refurbished old Soviet-era T-72s, and that is kind of the backbone of this assault, along with a large uh, number of other uh, infantry fighting vehicles. And they're running a, a mobile offense where they're, they're basically running uh, at high speed through lightly garrisoned uh, Russian-occupied towns and settlements. Whenever they meet any resistance, they're not fighting at all. They're just going around the settlement. When they have advanced notice that the garrison here is particularly weak, they might go in and clean it up. Um, And they're aiming far to the east. They've, They've actually potentially created a big problem for themselves uh, in terms of uh, supply and reinforcement by penetrating in a deep, but in this case, broad corridor and in Russian lines um, towards an important logistical node of Kupiansk, which um, is a settlement that if it falls, it could present uh, challenges for supplying a big Russian military grouping to the south of Izum, which is um, focused on the conflict in Donetsk. Um, And in a lot of these towns and settlements, Russia has had their forces withdraw rather than be enveloped and surrounded without even resisting at all. So you're seeing a lot of blue flags pop up and, and Ukrainian troops, you know, taking pictures outside settlements and so forth. But there hasn't actually been a lot of fighting that, that Kiev is, has uh, accomplished to do this. This is a, a kind of like a bully run. Um, they're, they're, they're taking, uh, you know, weak, particularly weak where they can. Um, but, um, they're leaving themselves pretty strung out in the process. And there is big Russian, uh, and Donbass reinforcements moving into the conflict zone right now. And the next, I think this weekend will be particularly telling here. I don't expect Kiev to be able to maintain their gains here. But regardless, it is a big propaganda and psychological success. And um, that is going to uh, have repercussions. It's also going to have repercussions for the local population because um, all of these towns, all of the people who have been cooperating for months with the Russian forces there, they're all now facing a massacre. They're, they're facing another a, a bucha, uh, where there's already messages going out about hunting down traitors and collaborators. Um, and um, it, get, it could get pretty nasty. I mean, to just give you an indication, even on the legal side, The Kiev regime recently enacted a law saying that anyone who even accepts food 
or medicine, humanitarian aid from Russian forces, is subject by up to 15 years in prison. That treason would probably be considered treason at this point. Now, Mark, you touched on something about the Russian reinforcements potentially coming in um, from yes. the east. Would Can you elaborate on that? Is I mean, would something like that be a game, can, game changer, especially given that there's rumors that, that the Ukrainians are trying to blow up the, the main road um, leading from the east in the Lugansk and Donetsk region? Yeah, um, so it could be, right? There's heavy fighting ahead. The Russian position is not good here. For whatever reason, they um, left this, you know, this this front here, despite an obvious buildup to, uh, you know, uh, a, a significant disadvantage. Um, and um, it, it it is having, uh, you know, significant problems for getting reinforcements is this does not appear to be like occurred in the south some type of of deliberate trap to lure uh ukrainian troops into an undefended position strung out uh but uh it's going to be a tough fought weekend uh for the russian here forces here it is not like a crippling blow but it could set back the effort in the area by months and so, Mark, do, do so. Do you so you believe that this will, um, as far as the Russian effort there, just overall substantively, that what happens here it has a real serious impact on the overall uh, effort, uh, Russian effort in Ukraine. Like, how serious yeah. would it be? Yeah, I, I think it's serious. I don't think it's a crippling blow uh, or anything like that, but it is definitely a setback. And it is showing that the Kiev regime can have some success on the battlefield uh, when they they switch to, you know, say, say more unorthodox tactics like this. Basically, the big disadvantage that the Russian forces have uh, in in this this, uh, conflict is they have limited the size of their intervention force for whatever reason. And that's a a big debate in Russia right now. to only about 150,000 troops supplemented by about 50,000 East Ukrainian uh, forces from the Donbass that are fighting against the regime. But they have, yeah, they have a lot of firepower. Um, the other problem, uh, the other issue is that Kiev has very limited firepower. They've lost most of their gear, but they have lots of cannon fodder. They've got lots of troops that they're willing to throw into the meat grinder. So they're attempting to spread Russian heavy fires out over broad areas and overwhelm them. Up until the last few months, we've seen a conflict just in the east where Russia is grinding away at Ukrainian defenses slowly but methodically and taking minimal casualties. This is meant to put stress on Russia's primary disadvantage that they have a very limited manpower intervention across the country. And there's even rumors that there's buildups for a third or fourth counteroffensive wave in other areas. So even after this one is cleaned up, Russia is going to seriously have to question whether they need to put more uh, forces inside of Ukraine and grow the intervention force from just this 150,000. It seems likely that this was war gamed out and planned with the Pentagon. Mark, can I shift gears a little bit to uh, the diplomatic angle of all of this, given the recent news that, I mean, two two parts here, um, that 
the, I forget the person's name, but the the second in command of the Ministry of Defense, I believe, in Poland, basically talking to the press saying that they believed that Russia will invade Poland. They'll go to war with Poland in the next three to five years. And that's part of the rhetoric, I think, that Antony Blinken was kind of riding the the coattails for. I think the name is Opika. I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly. Uh, Opika. Um, and then you have the the Schengen visa basically being canceled for all Russians. And and what, I mean, what is this shaping up to look like all across Europe? I mean, this is seeming like this is a, a, a whole, a, the totality of Europe is all against Russia at this point. Are they, at some point, they've got to be crossing the Rubicon where the diplomatic relations are going to be so soured that it, it's beyond repair. I mean, have have we gotten there yet? Oh yeah, I think we're well past that point. I think I think we're well past that point. I I've called it the great decoupling. I do not think that there's going to be any return to normal relations between Russia and the EU or more broadly between Russia and the West, not for years, decades, probably for the rest of our lives. We're we're looking at another situation that uh, you know, in talking about the divide in Europe at least, it is like the Cold War except worse because now it's actually a hot war. That's just wow. frightening to think about. I mean, because I'm a little bit older than these two in the <laughs> in the studio here. But as a kid, I, I still, I remember um, what that Cold War was. You know, I, I remember it. I remember my dad explaining to me these frosty relations and how you basically, you know, in Berlin, there's this wall and people couldn't go between East and West. And, you know, I understood all of that. I remember it coming down. Are, I mean, will we physically see something like that be re-erected all around Europe? No, I don't think we'll see anything quite like that, although it has to be said that, that Finland is already building a small fence along their very long, inhospitable, swampy border with Russia. Uh, now that they've joined NATO, they suddenly have need of it where they didn't before. Um but um, I, I do think that you're going to see a partitioned Ukraine. You are going to see a partitioned Ukraine. Um, we don't know exactly where that partition is going to be at this point. I mean, that's basically what the war is determining. Um, but uh, we uh, it, that is going to be the dividing line uh, come, uh, you know, what the end of this conflict looks like. Much like Germany was divided during the Cold War, it will be Ukraine that is divided uh, as a result of the of this conflict. And, you know, Mark, what I find, I mean, there's a lot of hypocritical statements coming out of um, the U.S. deep state. I'm not going to pin this directly on Joe Biden's administration. This is, you know, a, a U.S. foreign policy um, constant for example, that that the U.S. wants to, you know, on one side of their mouth, they say they recognize the one China policy. Meanwhile, they're over there pushing Taiwan's independence and what have you. Um, why does the U.S. want to so-called respect Taiwan's, you know, wanting to be independent of mainland China? Meanwhile, the U.S. refuses or rejects the notion that the Donbass wants to be independent of Ukraine. Yeah, this this is not about principle, of course, this is about geopolitics, 
right? On both sides, it must be said, uh, but certainly the U.S. position. So don't try to look for for any consistent position, uh, you know, on 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 the principle of of sovereign determination and and independence and the like. There, this is you know an old. Western strategy that has been long theorized by Rand uh, and others. It's called the pressure cooker, right? You do whatever you can against a, a, a pure competitor, an adversarial great power to surround them with hostile states, right? That are armed against them that you basically use as cannon fodder to both contain and provoke them into conflict so that they waste their, their resources. This is done by hook or crook, right? You spend large amounts of money, uh, you know, on what is called promotion of democracy or the like, right? Getting governments into power that will take a, a pro Western stance being completely dependent on the United States that you can funnel arms into in large quantities. It's called the pressure cooker. It's it's a well-known Rand, uh, you know, the uh, big uh, D.C. strategic think tank uh, plan for, you know, forever. I think the similar, obviously, uh, the U.S. Yes. says Taiwan is, is separate, but together, but we're going to sell them arms that are really going to piss off mainland China and no, yeah, well, don't bad. We have a be. one China policy, but we don't. Right. <laughs> you, I, I, I just you know, can't. your fingers crossed behind the back. You know? <laughs> and Mark, I think you're absolutely right about um, long term not having positive relationships across the board. I mean, you even have Greece right now saying, oh, well, when this war is over, we might be uh, the next uh, issue. We might be in war with Turkey. I mean, it just seems like this is causing a ripple effect. And a lot of countries are now starting to, you know, realize that their borders and whatnot, they, that, that this might be an issue for them as well. And so then when you look at it, um, of how much the U.S. is spending to, I mean, is sending to Ukraine, I mean, every, almost every 24 hours, we've got a new billion dollar drop from Papa Joe Biden. Um, when When does this end? And, you know, if, if the goal is to, you know, as you said, Cold War, basically do the same thing Ronald Reagan did in front all of these different fights with Russia um, and by trying to send billions of dollars to choke out the economy. When, you know, at what point do you think America will say, um, the people in America will say enough? What is the U.S. federal deficit, national deficit right now? Is oh, it in gosh. the trillions? In the trillions. <laughs> it's, it's above $30 trillion. And do you think that there is any political opposition in the United States on either side of the right-left Coke-Pepsi political aisle to stop the U.S. from taking out another $10 trillion uh, in uh, arming up uh, Ukraine and Taiwan to fight their peer, peer competitors, Russia and China. No, there isn't. Isn't this different? This, I mean, we've never seen any type of foreign military expenditure for a foreign country like this. I mean, this I mean is, these numbers Mark, are crazy. This is gobbling up money faster at this rate. We will be well past what we spent in yeah, Afghanistan in 20 you, years. You know the U.S. government does not believe in foreign. They don't believe that they owe the debt, right? They don't believe debt is real. <laughs> That's that they believe that as long as the dollar is the reserve currency of the world, 
that they can continue to burr, 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 qualitative Ooh. easing money machine print. And <laughs> this, funny. this conflict in East Ukraine will probably continue for years. Well, let's let's talk about that. I mean, with the petrodollar, it, it seems like at least with with, you know, so many sanctions against the against Russian crude, this attempted uh, price cap that Janet Yellen is pushing for with G7 countries, and, <laughs> you know, including Japan. It, it Well, obviously, the Russians are saying, well, we're just going to trade more with our East or Eastern Asian allies. China has agreed to do that, and they're just going to pay in rubles. I mean, not that- just China, but India. You know, here's a country that will surprise you that is buying Russian oil like no tomorrow. Saudi Arabia. Yes. What are they doing with it? They're using it for their own domestic needs and then selling their own oil to the West at a significant markup. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's got game in this, right? Um, No one, no, no one is going to agree to this silly price cap. No one is going to agree to let the U.S. dictate the price of oil to the global market. No. (laughs) <laughs> it's oh, a my joke. God. I mean, I mean, couldn't that precipitate then the death of the petrodollar, at which point at some point we're going to have to say, holy crap, our U.S. debt it, is real. It is definitely moving things faster in that direction. But that's relatively speaking. And the U.S., you know, there, there just is no clear substitute. There is the possibility of more and more countries trading within each other's currencies. But China hasn't even positioned their currency. Uh, they have to make all kinds of, of openness about their, their uh, economic system and their currency for it to be a real replacement. We're far from that point. So even if people are using the dollar less, it will still be the only reserve currency for at least another 10 years, probably another two decades uh, and, and before we see any big, huge break away from that. Hey, Mark, can I switch you over to some European politics? Now, we know that the Sweden elections are actually coming up, and it seems as if the right is gaining some traction. Far right. Yeah, the far right. The far right is gaining some traction. Let's differentiate. You should know. You're on the right. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Why do you think, why has there been a resurgence of not just the right, but the far right in Europe? Like, what do you think about that? Like in Sweden. Yeah, it's a a mixed bag, right? I, I, I don't think you are definitely seeing a move away from the center right and center left parties, right? For decades, we've seen this. We've seen it in the U.S. as well, but there's there hasn't been emerged any political alternative there where there's this triangulation where the center right and center left keep moving closer to the a, a neoliberal common center. And all of the real distinction is is mostly, uh, you know, a cultural packaging. Um, there's certainly no differences in foreign policy, very slight differences in, in priority spending and economics and the like. And people really, a lot of people, particularly in Europe, really are looking for alternatives. And if you take a look, for instance, at the recent French election, you saw a big rise, not only in Le Pen's quote unquote far right party, which is actually more economically left than Democrats in the United States. <laughs> um, and uh, but also the far left Melanchon party. Right. Um, uh, we, we saw similar things in Germany 
where there we saw the rise of the Greens to a renew uh, a new uh, provenance. So I, I consider the Greens, the German Greens, really more of a coal black neocon party that now has Germany back to burning coal. Uh, but, you know, uh, you know, there's that there in Sweden. The alternative has uh, emerged mostly on the right. But that's a lot more to do with domestic issues and particularly with uh, immigration uh, and and domestic issues they're having there from what many people there consider to be excessive uh, immigration uh, of people that are not easily um, melding into the rest of 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 existing Swedish society. So there's a mixed bag across the board, but in general, a lot of Europeans are looking either to the far right or to the far left for an alternative to an increasingly triangulated center right, center left that is indistinguishable. Yeah. What's interesting there. um, So when, if, and when the listeners go and look up what's happening um, in Sweden, don't be fooled by the names over yeah. there in Sweden, they're, they're called, the far right there is called the Democrats. So it's very, very different here. So they, I mean, they're going with basically like a MAGA um, uh, moniker. They're going by this motto of make Sweden great again. They want to really stiffen immigration policies. They're, you know, they're very, they're an ultra-nationalist group. And there are also elements that people have floated that these these are also, you know, white supremacists within that group and that they might you know, they're actually saying, give us a chance. <laughs> I can't say this without laughing a little bit. Um, but they actually do stand a chance to take a, a, a big chunk of the ballots that are coming up on this Sunday. I think they're going to the polls uh, September 11th. What does that do then if if they start if they start gaining traction in in their parliament? I'm not sure what they call their parliament. Uh, but what does that do, Mark, going forward in the way of how Sweden might respond to, uh, you know, the role of the EU in this war effort in Ukraine. Yeah, I, I don't think that we'll definitely will necessarily see a lot of difference with. I mean, that they will be another right wing thorn, uh, you know, to the EU technocratic elite, which is overall very liberal. But you have to remember that there's a large number of these far right Swedish you know, um, Democrats. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Democrats with their roots in the neo-Nazi movement that are fighting for the Kiev regime in Ukraine. So I don't expect any significant improvement in relations there just because the far right is elected. I mean, Michael Skillet is kind of the poster child of, of the Swedish neo-Nazis, uh, who went on to fight for Azov and, you know, um, is, is continuing in their own roles now, but he's far from the only one. There's, there's significant numbers of them. Uh, so don't expect any big sea change in the way Sweden is looking at this conflict, uh, even if uh, you see a resurgent far right in Sweden. But p- perhaps they'll become even more hawkish. Hey, Mark, uh, just another question for you. This is my last one, I promise. Uh, we are no, actually seeing reports. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> We're seeing reports now that Belarus have actually, has actually started some unannounced military um, exercises near the EU border. Um, what do you think about that? Does it does that does it appear that is it Belarus posturing? is actually um, getting ready to get involved 
in the yeah, there's, conflict? There's been rumors about this every time Belarus has done military drills since the beginning of the conflict. I think this is more signaling to the West and particularly to Poland to stay out of the conflict. There is a very real possibility that Poland could send troops at least into Western Ukraine in a ostensibly defensive role. But I don't expect Belarus uh, to enter into combat in in Ukraine. I, I think this is it would be useful enough if they would draw off Kiev regime troops for, you know, you know, uh, kind of uh, a bluffing need to defense maneuver uh, for for Russia. Uh, but I, I don't think at this point we're going to see Lukashenko uh, enter into the conflict. That's been talked about since the beginning. It hasn't materialized yet. It could, but I haven't seen any evidence uh, that any solid evidence that Belarus is going to get involved. I think Lukashenko likes his position right now, kind of, you know, playing the the provocateur. Now, Mark, last question here before we let you go. I think a couple days ago, this week has has been short, so I'm losing track of the days. Uh, But a few days ago, the Russian MOD released a rough estimate of some several thousands, I forget the exact number, several thousands of foreign fighters who um, they have counted among the dead. Uh, They haven't released yet exactly where, you know, what countries these guys are coming from, but they say it's it's in the high thousands. I don't know if we're in the, the... tens of thousands yet, but several thousands of foreign fighters they've reportedly have been killed in this uh, conflict in the uh, in the military operation there. But where do you suspect that these guys are coming from? Okay, we actually know that because um, at least as of June, I haven't seen a detailed breakdown since then, but I don't expect the patterns of change. In uh, June, the Russian Ministry of Defense put out a detailed list of every single foreign fighter alive and dead uh, in Ukraine and where they came from. And by far the biggest number of them came from Poland um, and, and swiftly, well, a, a significant drop down after that uh, to the United Kingdom, uh, but Poland is is the the source of the major the largest number of foreign fighters in this conflict. I mean, that would uh, make at sense. least on the Ukrainian side. Yeah, yeah, that would make sense. I mean, they're they're right there, northern neighbors. Uh, but we'll leave that right there. And as this effort continues, obviously, we're going to continue to to monitor what's happening um, out in the Donbass as the Ukrainians apparently are setting their eyes on major roads there to isolate the region. I know you'll be watching. Uh, our friend Mark Sloboda, international analyst. Uh, thank you so much. Make sure you all follow him on Twitter at Mark Sloboda and the number one, Mark Sloboda one. Thank you so much, Mark. Have a great weekend. Thanks for having me. All right. That's, I mean, this stuff is constant. The spore effort. I mean, yeah. Uh, we've got a few minutes left. Let's take a very short break. When we return, we'll be taking your calls. Dial us up. You got any thoughts? 202-521-1320. We were, we'll be right back after this break. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. All right, we are back on Radio Sputnik. You're listening to Fault Lines. Uh, We are taking calls if you have any opinions or thoughts 
Uh, we're at 202-521-1320. Uh, I know the Rumble chat room is very active. Are they uh, rumbling? They are rumbling. We've got our first caller of the day. Uh, let's go over to Pete down in Florida. Hello. Good morning, Pete. Hey, good morning. You guys have some great guests. I wish I could have asked Mark one question. <laughs> we'll save it for next time. Tell us what it is. Well, I was reading in Sputnik now that over in Syria, where we're occupying illegally, the United States stealing their oil, that we were training the Kurds with that uh, javelin missiles. I wonder how the Turks are going to feel when their tanks come into Syria and the javelins hit the Turks. Hmm, that's an interesting one. We'll yeah, we'll keep that in mind potentially next week, especially because the Turks and the Greeks are really ratcheting up their tensions right now. Um, so we're monitoring that situation as well. So if that is true, that can really drag the U.S. into a complicated situation, you know, with Turkey being a NATO country. And they literally hold the key to whether or not Finland and Sweden can join. Well, we sent $40 billion to the Ukraine. Every Democrat in the House and Senate voted for it. and There was no strings where the weapons were going to go. You don't think that maybe the CIA was buying on the dark market, uh, the dark web, these weapons to bring in, to train the Kurds with? I mean, well, this is all real that you don't hear about in the Washington Post or the New York Times. And you and your, 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 your fellow workers were talking about it. And you were talking about your history with the New York Times and the Washington Post. The biggest problem is people that are over 30 years old now know that have followed them, know they lie all the time to each state. Weapons of mass destruction, Gulf of Tonkin, that's all they are is the tool. And if they didn't yeah. do it, they wouldn't be exist. Yeah, excellent point. Excellent point, Pete. We don't hear from you very often, but I always appreciate when you call in. I'll be sure to keep that in mind uh, as we continue to monitor that region, Turkey and Greece, that beef always there. Uh, thank you for your call, Pete. Let's head over, go up north to Mark, our friend Mark. We haven't heard from you. Mark in New York. Mark, we've only got two and a half minutes. Good morning. Good morning. Hi, this is Mark in New York. How yes. you doing, Mark? Go ahead, Mark. I, I, I'm trying to be just as low-key as possible. You know I haven't been calling in, but I'll leave that alone. The Queen. The Wicked Witch is Dead, Goodbye, Symbolism, White Supremacy, as your uh, call-in guest said, Robert. Uh, absolutely. And as you can see, as Europe moves to a more extreme, particularly the Western Europe in the fault, in, 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 in its boogeyman chase of Russia, uh, it has denied itself what is, ne what is seemingly never had, which is basic resources of energy to empower its capitalist, its capitalist will. Um, as a result, um, the right wing will emerge, and the white supremacy, the rule of the day, which caused, which led to Europe's justification and doctrine for invading every other land under the Queen and under the Spanish crown, is a reason to say, God rest in soul, that the dead is gone, that we can say goodbye to this, this wicked witch. So I have not the question about decency for her. Yes, the plunder of the world is at the rest of that crown as well as the Spanish crown. So there's no question of decency here for me. And I think a lot of your guests or audience might agree. 
I think a lot of people, yeah, would would agree with that. And and everybody's entitled to their opinion. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people listening would agree with you and Robert Patillo. Uh, Keep Mark, telling the truth, Mark. Mark, always good to hear from you, our buddy Mark there in New York City. All right, that brings us to the end of the second hour here at Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. You have been listening to Manila Chan, fill-in guest co-host Malik Abdul, and Emrys Everson. We'll be back for the final hour for this Friday here on Fault Lines at Radio Sputnik. Sit tight. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. And live from the divided states of America in the belly of the beast in Washington, D.C., good morning. You are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for joining us on Rumble. Hey, Rumblers, 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the D.C. Metro. We're also in Kansas City at 1140 AM, 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM on your radio dial. I am M. Reese. The Vice of Legalese here with your uh, my other guest co-host, the Durag Conservative, but this week, Atomic Magna, MAGA, Malik Abdul, as well as our permanent host, the Vixen of Veritas, the Thriller in Manila, Chan. And this is the show that dares to go there. This is Fault Lines. I love our callers. I yeah, they I don't always great. agree, but they are great. But I appreciate them. The engagement. That's what's important. The engagement. That's what we need. So. It means active listening. Thoughts yes, are welcome absolutely. Freely. Intelligent yes. discussion is welcome here. Yes. It, it, to me, shows that there are active listeners out there, that we're not just on in the background, that people are actually hearing and digesting what's happening on the show. And so listening I to Mark. Like, they're <laughs> listening to Mark. Was it Phil? Was that his name? No, the one who did the caller who asked about if he had a question. Pete, Pete. Yeah, if he had a question. He's going to have to call back next week because more than likely we'll have Mark back. And Mark may be able to answer some of those questions. And definitely, you know, the stuff potentially that could pop off between Turkey, the Kurds. Turkey is is mad at the Swedes, you know, for what they say is harboring um, PKK terrorists. And now, you know, they've had this ongoing beef with uh, Greece, mm-hmm. um, especially you know over uh, over the islands, as well as uh, the migrant issue from the Middle Eastern migrant issue, and what Greece did to them. And so there's a lot of stuff that could potentially pop off this weekend because tempers have flared. And and you heard him say that you know can't really get this anywhere else. No one else is talking about this stuff. So you know once again pat ourselves on the back. You know for getting granular on many topics across the board, international politics, domestic politics, we cover it all. We got that good now, stuff, Speaking y'all. of covering that all. And in, in, in news, national news, we'll start with what's going on here in Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser has declared a public emergency on Thursday over the crisis stemming from the arrival of thousands of immigrants in the U.S. Capitol from Texas and Arizona. That's right, they are being bussed in. The emergency plan includes the establishment of an Office of Migrant Services, subordinate to the Department of Human Services, whose mission will be to provide support for the incoming migrants. 
In other news, Steve Bannon arrived at a courthouse in New York City on Thursday morning to surrender to New York State prosecutors over fraud charges. Bannon and three associates raised more than $25 million to help fund Donald Trump's signature border wall on GoFundMe. Two of his associates pled guilty to fraud charges in 2020, and Bannon himself has been accused of pocketing $1 million in cash from the raised funds. Bannon, of course, has dismissed the charges against him, saying on Tuesday that the authorities were trying to prosecute him on phony charges and alleged in alleging that he was being persecuted by the New York District Attorney Alvin Bragg personally. On Thursday, the U.S. Coast Guard responded to a massive fire that broke out on the surface of Lake Leary. According to U.S. Coast Guard, the pipeline has been secured. The cause of the explosion is currently being established. According to one version, a barge broke loose and hit a natural gas pipeline, which could have triggered an explosion. A county official in Las Vegas, Nevada, is facing murder charges after he was arrested on Thursday, suspected of stabbing to death a journalist whose critical reporting may have cost him re-election, his re-election. Clark County Public Administrator Robert Tellis was taken into custody on Wednesday and charged with the killing of Las Vegas Review-Journal reporter Jeff German. Police had to show up in tactical gear and they surrounded Tellis's house, home, on Wednesday afternoon, shortly after he was spotted entering the premises wearing a hazmat protective suit. He was wheeled out of the building on a stretcher and loaded into an ambulance about four hours later. Well, he was taken alive. You can tell why. In international news... Queen Elizabeth II, Britain's longest reigning monarch, has died at the age of 96. There is now a national period of mourning, which has started in the UK, according to Sky News, and it will last for 10 days. I guess you guys need to deal with your feelings. All right. Uh, In other news, the Pentagon has committed $92 million to replenish the U.S. military stock of the M. 982 Excalibur, a 155-millimeter artillery shell with an effective firing range of up to 57 kilometers, Bloomberg reports, citing a DOD accounting document. The $92 million was spent for the procurement of replacement M982 Excalibur munitions transferred to Ukraine in support of the international efforts to counter Russian aggression, according to the document. If Bloomberg's reporting is accurate, the document is the first direct confirmation that Washington is supplying the shells to Kiev with U.S. officials previously remaining tight-lipped to media questions on this matter. On Friday, the Council of the EU adopted a decision to suspend issuing visas between the EU and Russia. According to a statement, the general rules of the visa code will therefore apply to Russian citizens. The decision will enter into force on the day of its adoption and will apply as of September 12, 2022. Classified NATO documents were leaked to the dark web after a massive cyber attack on the U.S. on the I'm sorry on the Armed Forces General Staff Agency of Portugal, EMGAFA. Local news organization Diário de Notícia reported. The sale of the, on the dark web of hundreds of documents 
which has been said to sent to Portugal's officials by NATO, was noticed by U.S. cyber intelligence agents who alerted the American embassy in Lisbon, according to Lisbon, according to sources cited by the publication. After that, the Portuguese government was informed of the significant data breach with a notice on the discovery sent directly to Prime Minister Antonio Costa in August. The administration of U.S. President Joe Biden has pledged yet another $2.2 billion in long-term military financing to Ukraine and 18 neighboring states and territories potentially at risk of future Russian aggression, pending approval by Congress. Secretary of State Antony Blinken revealed on Thursday during an unannounced visit to the Kiev, Blinken met with President, President Volodymyr Zelensky and other senior officials to discuss the details of the $2.2 billion package, of which $1 billion will go to Ukraine. The rest will be divided among regional security partners in order to help them deter and defend against emerging threats to their sovereignty and territorial integrity through the strengthening of their coordination with NATO and combating Russian influence and aggression, according to the State Department. In Earth and Science news, multiple dangerous climate tipping points are at risk of being triggered if the global temperature rises beyond 1.5 Celsius above pre-industrial levels. New findings have revealed that the study published in Science on September 9th warns that Earth is at a risk of passing five dangerous tipping points. Not two, not three, not four, five. Even at current levels of warming of around 1.1 Celsius degrees. I'm sorry, Celsius. Melting of the Greenland and West Antarctic ice sheets, which would result in huge sea level rises, widespread permafrost thaw, collapse of convections in the Labrador Sea, and a massive die-off of tropical coral reefs. Once a tipping point is triggered, explained the authors, even if emissions are stopped and temperatures stop rising, the ice sheets, ocean, or rainforest will carry on degrading for decades. Mother Earth is crying out, guys. We've got to answer. In our funny news of the day, a consignment of 7,000 donkey penises were estimated to be worth 200 million naira, or $478,000, or 416,000 pounds, has been intercepted by Nigeria's Customs Service at an airport in Lagos. The 16 sacks of animal parts have been found in the animal export section of Martala Mohammed Airport, with Hong Kong listed as the destination, according to San Sambo Dangladima, the Nigerian Customs Service area commander. The official told journalists that it was the fetid smell coming from the sacks that aroused the suspicion of the authorities. Okay, guys, somebody's got to answer for this. Why 7,000 donkey? Uh, okay, we need answers immediately. Immediately. Someone get Lagos on the phone. On this day in history, in 1791, Washington, D.C., the capital of the United States, was named after slave owner, President George Washington. 
1923, Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, the founder of the Republic of Turkey, founded the Republican People's Party. In 1948, Kim Il-sung declares the establishment of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, also now known as North Korea. In 1965, the United States Department of Housing and Urban Development was established and has since been allowing people to have housing options that they previously didn't have. In 2015, Elizabeth II became the longest reigning monarch of the United Kingdom up until yesterday when she departed for her next destination. And that is your news for today, Friday, September the 9th, and you are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. All right, let's take a quick break before we bring in our next guest, Sabrina Salvati. You know her as Savvy Sabs from the Savvy Sabs podcast. Uh, we'll be talking to her about a whole host of stuff because you know what? It's Fun Friday. Uh, there's a lot of stuff on the table uh, to talk about, especially with some media criticism. Um, which which caller was it? Was it Mark? Was it Mark that brought up uh, not to trust the New York Times and Washington Post? I think that was Mark, or was it Pete? It was Pete, maybe uh, Pete, the caller in Florida. But yeah, it's it's hard to trust these mainstream media outlets uh, when you know, for example, like the New York Times for ages um, had been colluding with um, the FBI and other, you know, three-letter agencies here in the U.S. And, you know, these are the people that we're supposed to trust with the Trump. And wasn't Mar-a-Lago it the New York stuff? Times? Is that, was they, were they, are they the gray lady? Is that, uh, because I forgot their nickname. I think, really? they, I think their nickname may have been the gray lady or something. Yeah, it's some, it's some weird, you know, kind of nickname. But journalism, I won't, journalism is not dead. I don't agree with that. Journalism is not dead, but... I think social media has done a number. I said well, that earlier. I, I, I would say journalism is, in mass, is dead, but but smaller outlets. Journalism has reformed. It's been a phoenix that's risen from the ashes of, you know, whatever it once was, if it ever had the glory days that we, you know. But, of course, it the media controls the media. Yes. So it tells us that it's amazing and it's wonderful. And of course, you know, there's there's financial incentive. Um, and now speaking of financial incentives, Anderson Cooper is himself making news. Uh, it's starting to spread now. Some Was legal... he drunk at the New York? No. Oh, he wasn't That's drunk. Don at... Lemon. Oh, oh this Don Lemon. That's you Don know, Lemon. I get him confused. Uh-oh. No, no. Anderson Uh-oh. Cooper, <laughs> apparently, um, some deposition that he was forced to give in court a couple of months back has not, I would say, leaked out to the press. Um, but it was leaked. The well, the person, the, the court reporter uh, was supposed to mark the document as private right. and failed to do so. So technically, it was a leak. Well, that wasn't necessarily. That wasn't a leak. Somebody that was stumbled a across it. That yeah. was an oops. Somebody stumbled across <laughs> it. So we're going to be talking about that uh, with Sabrina Salvati coming up right after this break. Don't go anywhere. Uh, Sabrina Salvati is coming up. She'll be joining us to talk about the sad state of American media. Um, and you know what? I'm going to throw in there for her 
the whole Queen Elizabeth stuff because of the professor at Carnegie Mellon and Sabrina worked in higher education. So I'm sure she's got some thoughts about that as well. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after this break on Radio Sputnik Fault Lines. Sabrina Salvati coming up. Fault Lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. I am Manila Chan, joined this week with guest co-host Malik Abdul and M. Reese Everson. Time to bring in our next guest for the final hour this week. Sabrina Salvati, the host of the Sabby Sab podcast. She is a Boston-based activist, leftist, and podcaster, member of the Revolutionary Blackout Network, a Black-led multicultural network and co-op of everyday people, activists, allies, focused on empowering communities through education, organizing, and direct action. Good morning, Sabrina. Thank you for being with us this morning. Good morning. Good morning. So let's first talk about this whole issue of the media. I mean, there's a lot to be said with uh, CNN specifically, you know, with Chris Licht coming in, firing a whole bunch of people. In the past month, there's been three people that have been outed. Uh, John Harwood, the White House, their their main White House correspondent, um, Brian Stelter of the their media show that apparently nobody watched. So he killed that. And, and there's somebody else that I forget. But did no, I was Harwood. Harwood. Yeah, I forget there's one more person, but but they're apparently cleaning house. Anderson Cooper, who has obviously um, been probably one of the main faces of CNN for a very long time, was called in for a deposition because of an ongoing lawsuit, I think from 2015 or 2016, that there's a doctor in Florida at St. Mary's Hospital, Dr. Black, um, CNN did this supposed deep dive investigation into St. Mary's Hospital and claimed that their pediatric cardiac uh, department had this insane level of deaths, um, that they're killing off babies there is basically the allegation. And so Dr. Black is suing CNN, the company, not Anderson Cooper, suing CNN, the company, as well as their medical correspondent, Elizabeth Cohen, um, basically saying that they ruined, they ruined his, his career, right? They shut down that whole department at St. Mary's Hospital. So Dr. Black is filing this lawsuit for damages and libel. We've already seen CNN face uh, a lot of, of monetary damage coming from the Nick Sandman uh, case. You remember that teenage boy that was here mm-hmm. at the nation's capital and the whole, you know, allegation of him, um, doing awful Being a things. racist. That's being essentially ra- right. what it was. Essentially what it is, right? Accusing him of being racist. So CNN's had to pay out a lot of money as of recent. There's stuff um, that are not made public. And this thing, this deposition from Anderson Cooper was supposed to be sealed and private. Nobody was supposed to know about this. But Puck News, P-U-C-K, they apparently broke the news. The One of their reporters, uh, I guess, found out that his deposition was not properly sealed, that it was still within the public domain. So he got it. He got hundreds of pages of deposition where Anderson Cooper brings up the company's uh, so-called vetting process that they call the triad. And the triad is, it goes, you know, all the scripts that 
goes into Anderson's teleprompter has been vetted by three different departments. It's a legal department, standards and practices, as well as senior editorial before it goes to Anderson's uh, teleprompter every night. Now, Anderson Cooper's issue with this was that the lawyer called him a host and he's like, I'm a journalist. But when you dig a little deeper, we find out that all this stuff, you know, that it's just put before him. Uh, I don't even understand the argument here that Anderson Cooper's you know, was trying to make. I don't know if you had a look at it, Sabrina, but break this down for us. I mean, I, I think most of the listeners, at least of this program and probably the listeners of your podcast would agree that CNN is not, you know, the most trusted name in news. I agree. Uh, <laughs> it's funny, Anderson Cooper, he, when, when I was in high school, I took a class called Programming and Broadcasting. And my teacher had actually previously worked at a local news station as a producer. So she had experience working in that field. And there were two journalists in particular that she used to ask us to to point to, to reference, in reference to how to do journalism. And one of them was Lisa Ling, and the other one was Anderson Cooper. <laughs> so it's funny. Uh, so back then, I actually believed that Anderson Cooper was a real, authentic, investigative journalist. This is back when he was out in the field. And... What I found out later on was that Anderson Cooper wouldn't even be where he is today in that position at CNN had it not been for his status, had it not been for his family name. He's a Vanderbilt. So he had connections and he had strings that were pulled for him to get him into that slot. And that's actually becoming more common with journalism, with commentary uh, today. In fact, Matt Taibbi has talked about this with Russell Brand, that it's more about a status symbol now. They're looking for people who went to these elite Ivy League schools, the Harvard graduates, Boston College. You know, so it's it has become an industry now that is not really open to just everyday average people who actually learned how to do journalism the old school way, which is hitting the pavement and talking to the people. And so those, the average people have kind of been shut out of getting those jobs at the Washington Post, at the New York Times, at CNN. So the voices that you're hearing a lot of times with mainstream media, it's usually people who already had some type of connection. They're coming from elite academic institutions or because of their family name. And you can point to Chris Cuomo for that as well. So that's a big part of the problem. But when you look at what Anderson Cooper actually does, yeah, he's reading from a teleprompter. He's not doing the research himself. I mean, the words are put in front of him. So as someone who studied broadcast journalism, I know exactly how it works. And that was one of the reasons I think that I was kind of turned off from mainstream media, because you don't really get the opportunity to say really what you want to say. You don't get the opportunity to tell your story. You're basically there as a puppet to read a script that is put in front of you. And I think if you want to tell your own story, you really have to be independent because even if you work for outlets like the New York Times, which is not broadcast journalism per se, it's written journalism, you still have to go through multiple editors that are going to change your work and by the time they're done with it, it's not even what you started with to begin with. 
So I think people like Anderson Cooper that have been doing this for a long time, they kind of see it as an insult when you tell them that they're a host and they're not a journalist. But really, you are a host. He is a commentator, just like Brian Stelter was a commentator. They're not doing investigative journalism out in the field. That's a very good point. Good morning, Sabrina. Thanks for joining us. Um, what do you think about, um, and it's great talking to you because, you know, it's a difference when you are steeped in it. Like you have the training, the academic training when we're talking about journalism. What do you think has happened in this era of social media? I'm one of the persons that I, well, I'll say I have a different opinion about now than I did at first. I was, I used to be very impressed with, you know, not to get on her, but with Yumiche Alcindor. Because she was with um, PBS, I believe. And she was, you know, I felt like she was great. But then when I started paying attention to her during those White House press conferences with Donald Trump and some of the things that she would say on social media and really um, going with the social media angle, what do you think that, that like the impact of social media when it comes to even trained journalists? Like, what do you think about that? I think it's made journalism somewhat lazy, to be honest with you, because Again, like when I was taught to do journalism, there was no Facebook. There wasn't a Twitter. So right. if you wanted to get a story, you actually had to go find the people uh, that were involved in the story that you wanted to talk about. And you had to interview them and you had to get their words on paper. You had to get permission to record them. It's it's a little bit different now because now you can just use outlets like Twitter and Facebook. And I would caution people relying heavily on Twitter uh, for your news. Oh, say it again. <laughs> yeah, because some of the things on there, they're not correct. And if I see a clip on Twitter, before I even think about using it, I always try to go back to the original source so I can see the full video, so you can see the full context. And I've seen people do that a lot in independent media. They'll just take that two-minute clip that's on Twitter, and then they'll tell a story about it on their show, not realizing that that is a longer video. And if you don't watch the full video, you may not understand the context of the information that was presented in that two minute clip. So I think that's really important. So you should look, you shouldn't rely on Twitter or Facebook to be your new source. You should always go back to the original source. And it used to be with journalism, if you wanted to get a story, you had to hunt people down. You had to pick up the phone and call people to see if you could get information from them, if they would even talk. You had to go meet people in person and ask them if you could get a story. That type of journalism is has pretty much, for the most part, gone away. Even when you look at local news, they're still kind of relying on uh, social media. So what I would like to see are networks like CNN and MSNBC going back out on the street and interviewing the people that are affected by the issues that they're talking about, which I don't see them doing that anymore. I, I look at an example uh, more recently. They were talking about how younger people feel about canceling 10K to 20K of student loan debt. But there were no young people on the show. They weren't interviewing anyone on the street. They didn't go to any of the universities. They didn't even try to interview any of them to ask them how they feel about it. What they did do is that they brought on uh, experts, per se, that don't even have student loan debt. So it's just become a little bit more lazy, I think. People are not going that extra mile that they used to go. And CNN, I think, is is one of the, the networks, and, and Fox too, but CNN, I think, is one of the networks that 
has really had a rating slump. And I think that's part of the reason why they're starting to get rid of people for budget reasons. But they're just not reliable. There's multiple times I watch CNN and I know they're not telling the whole story. Uh, They come back, they, they have to retract things. Uh, look at how they tried to smear Joe Rogan. You know, Joe Rogan could have sued them, to be honest. And it's just lazy. It, it's lazy work. And what's interesting is that outlets like YouTube have decided that that is uh, CNN and MSNBC and Fox News are not misinformation. They can talk about whatever they want on YouTube, but you'll have actual independent journalists like Whitney Webb like Wyatt Reed, who are actually hitting the pavement and talking to the people to get these stories, and they're not considered, uh, they, they are considered misinformation. So it, to me, it doesn't make any sense. There's multiple times where I've seen Fox News tell lies and CNN tell lies, but they're allowed to be on YouTube because they're considered mainstream media. You know what? I am so glad you brought that up about the redactions and just the cost. And Malik, you know, we haven't agreed all morning, but this is our first. I'm going to go. And since you brought it up, since you brought her up, uh, Miss Yumish Elsendor, I will just say that in in my experience uh, as a young woman who worked on Capitol Hill and came forward about the harassment that I experienced, um, she came to me wanting to do the story. And then, for some reason, she did an article and silenced the story and didn't report on it accurately to the point that I had to go and reach out to Washington Post to have them redact what she said. And so my and and then the next retract, retract, sorry. And so, sorry, as an attorney, I should have correct. And and to that point, they then uh, the next thing I know, she was a Washington uh, White House correspondent. And so, you know, what I'm concerned about is people who are using their platform to be able to basically scale their career by not doing the proper, you know, journalistic duty. But even further, if you go look at the story that um, Anderson Cooper was involved in, the doctor had to sue him because he was a part of a practice, a thriving practice down in West Palm Beach. And because it was reported inaccurately, according to him, by uh, Anderson Cooper uh, and and the medical correspondent, Elizabeth Cohen, saying that, oh, well, there's been um, uh, thousands of infant deaths. You know, no, the mortality rate for open heart surgery, according to them, was three times the national average. Well, no woman with a brand new baby wants to take her baby to a place that CNN has reported as, you know, three times higher with infant deaths. You're just not going to go there. So they had to shut down the whole practice. And so journalism has to, you know, actually be reporting on the truth, but also aware of, you know, that there are consequences and that you can't be irresponsible. You actually have to do your due diligence. And and that's something that unfortunately is not always happening. So Sabrina, thank you for bringing that up. Yes, I think that with that particular situation, what Anderson Cooper probably should have done was he probably should have had that doctor or someone else at that facility on. He probably should have had them come on and tell their side because, you know, sometimes there's allegations and you only hear that side of it. But I think you need to hear from both sides. You need to hear from both parties. And so that's something that I really try to do. Uh, There was this expose recently 
about uh, Caleb Maupin and his group, uh, Center for Political Innovation, and there were allegations there. What I did was I reached out to him for a statement. He said he wasn't ready to come forward yet, but I reached out to him for a statement, and he gave me a statement. You have to, you got to do something. But if you just tell that one side of the story, that's not right. Like they're out here ruining people's careers. They're ruining people's lives. Like someone like Joe Rogan, they smeared him, but because he's who he is, he's able to just bounce back, right? He's a celebrity, so it's a little bit different. But think about the people that they've they've lied about that are not celebrities, that are everyday working people that have lost their jobs because of what CNN or MSNBC or Fox News has said about them. It's dangerous journalism. Very, very much so. Is that what sells nowadays? Are people clicking on these things? I mean, what is the the motive? We know that most of, I mean, let's let's be real. The, the the finances are the main motivating factor, right, of why they do what they do and and they look at ratings. In fact, that was one of the questions that was posed uh, to Anderson Cooper by Doctor Black's attorneys. Was they asked him, "Hey, Anderson, do you get any bonuses or perks?" depending on ratings. And Anderson danced around that and refused to answer or acknowledge any of that. But let's be real. We know that they get pay, they get bonuses for these things. If, you're, if your ratings are high, then you're going to get a, a financial incentive. I mean, we saw that with Rachel Maddow, right? During the last five years of her whole Russiagate thing and, you know, Russia's going to turn off the power grid in North Dakota and your grandma's going to freeze to death. That got her ratings. That gave her um, among some of the top paid people uh, in in U.S. media. I mean, she's up there with Sean Hannity at this point. She might have been making more than Anderson Cooper. There's always a financial incentive behind all of this in the media. But Anderson Cooper is like avoiding the elephant in the room. Yes, they they do receive bonuses for that, uh, for people who are not aware. It's kind of like... Um if you go to a shoe store and you buy a pair of shoes, you get up to the register and they ask you, did anybody assist you today? And if someone did, you tell them and they would put in that person's code and that person would get commission along with their hourly uh, salary. So they do receive uh, incentives for that and bonuses for that. But also we have kind of transitioned into what I call clickbait media. And that's been happening, not just with mainstream media, but independent media as well. People are talking about stories and using titles that are going to encourage viewers to click on it, and CNN is also doing that as well. Again, their ratings have have decreased ever since Joe Biden won office, and I think they've been steadily decreasing. This plan that they had to uh, create, CNN Plus, complete failure. Uh, So people are just not interested in that, and a lot of younger people are more likely to look towards independent media web media, something outside of that mainstream narrative, right? So the clickbait media has become a problem, and a lot of people are doing it, and they're doing it because they want to get the views. So if CNN's ratings have decreased, they're going to try to talk about topics that are going to encourage people or kind of push people to actually stop and listen to what they have to say. And... (laughs) I'm sorry, but the journalism is still flawed. Uh, it's still bad. And it's it's just become sensationalized journalism. It's not even news. It's not real news anymore. And local news has been doing this for a long time, too. They have, like, these clickbait titles, and that's kind of where 
some of these outlets have been going. And, you know, there's no accountability. That's the problem. Yeah. And you know what? That's a that's a really good point. When you talk about um, clickbait, sensational journalism, um, oftentimes I'm actually, you know, critical of people because I said, well, did you read the article? Because, you know, we we only focus on the headline and Twitter is the perfect space for that, where someone sees a headline. They didn't actually read the article and then they share it and then someone else shares it. And then you have tens of thousands of views where a lot of times the articles often might actually provide much more context than what the clickbait headline says. There have been, since last week, I've got a, uh, fielded a number of calls from media outlets because they kind of found out that I'm from Jackson, Mississippi. And so a number of places have wanted me to come on to talk about the environmental racism in Jackson, Mississippi. And so you know how sometimes they'll do a pre-interview to kind of get your point of view to say, okay, well, you know, what do you think about this or that? And of the of the three, all three of them decided not to interview me because I wanted to have a more layered conversation because I'm from Jackson. So I know the issue wasn't just environmental racism. There are a lot of factors that led to it. But I think when you, you know, so when you talk about lazy journalism, like this was a real thing. Like it was a real thing that was happening with the flood and the, you know, the infrastructure, all of these things were a part of it. But the only thing that they wanted to book me for was to be the black guy to talk about the environmental racism down there in Mississippi. And I just refused to do it. You know, years ago, I probably would have jumped on it because I said that I needed, you know, hey, I need to, you know, build my profile. I need to expose the exposure. But now I'm at a point where I'm saying to myself, you know what, it's not worth my time. And few of us actually do that. And, you know, but I try to push back and at least add context because off, not often, I'm going to read the article and not just the headline that somebody posted on Twitter. And I tell people all the time, don't just listen to me. You may like what I say on this day. You, you're probably not going to like it tomorrow, but read. I'm going to give you the um, mechanism, you know, the articles and stuff well, for you to read it yourself. It requires doing the homework, right, Sabrina? And, and unfortunately, one of the, the terrible effects of social media is instant gratification and people aren't willing to do the homework. And that was where the job of journalists was supposed to be, is that you're supposed to trust these people to have done the homework. Correct. Uh, I'll use an example that happened a couple of months ago, and this was the story about Dave Chappelle uh, voting to not allow. Oh my gosh! The, yes. Um, housing. So many people reported that story, and they did not do their homework. If they would have actually done the research, they would have seen why Dave Chappelle took that approach, and also that it wasn't just him. So there was more to that story. Part of that had to do with gentrification, which they didn't want in that town. And everyone that I watched cover that story, they they just took the clip from Twitter and told the story. Like that's that's not real journalism. You have to dig a little bit deeper. People can put whatever they want uh, on Twitter. There's been a couple of times where stories have been incorrect, so you have to go a little bit further. And it's just gotten to that point now, like people can just make money off of that. They don't have to actually do any digging. Like if you want to point to someone who's been doing a lot of research over the past couple of years, look at someone like Whitney Webb. You know, she just wrote a book about Jeffrey uh, Epstein. She's been doing research for this on year, for years. 
sometimes it, it takes time. But if you are looking for that instant gratification, you have to ask yourself, what are you getting? The quality probably isn't as good. And Sabrina, let's just shift over to the the impact on people who, you know, the young people, many who, like you said, prefer web news and, you know, who won't list, tune in to CNN and listen for hours on end, who would prefer to just scroll through Instagram and see different articles and click on links that they find interesting if they even, you know, do click on the link. But because of where we are as a society, we know from this lawsuit that, you know, ed- the CNN has editorial practices now. And, you know, Anderson Cooper, when he has a guest, he might have to send him the qu- expert. He might send him the questions. And now the guest is reading through the questions and sending back the answers. And so, you know, that sort of in- that sort of quote unquote journalism is accepted. But then when you have, you know, something like, I don't know, a pandemic, um, you know, COVID-19 breakout, everything on social media is flagged as, oh, this is disinformation. Oh, this has not been approved by the CDC. Oh, this is, unex- mm-hmm. you know, we don't ex- allow this type of reporting. We're going to shut you down if you keep saying that you should, you don't take the vaccine or that the vaccine doesn't always work or that the vaccine might kill you. That's, you couldn't even question it. You literally could not raise any issue as to what your thoughts were, what other alternative medicine practices were for, you know, inflammation and things like that, natural holistic remedies, if you wanted to take colloidal silver or whatever, uh, black seed oil, all of that was denounced. So can we speak to, you know, what the impact on on our society, our youth are, who don't always want to sit in front of a TV or don't have the attention span to? And where discourse is not allowed. Right. Well, the alphabet letter groups have a lot to do with that. <laughs> it's allowed to talk about it. Put out and what's not. Um, they don't want us to know about home remedies. They want us to rely on big pharma because that's where the money is. They don't want us to know that there's things that we can do to cure ourselves uh, because there's no money in that. <laughs> oh, Sabrina, let me chime in there. Just so you know, the mainstream media, not you, I mean, the listeners, Something something absurd, like 65 or 70 percent of the commercials you see on mainstream media are funded by big pharma. It's like Cialis, Viagra, or whatever, restless leg syndrome. Yes, even the 2020 Democrat primary debates was funded by big pharma. So I think that I think people may not understand just how much of a hold big pharma has uh, on this country. But people have to look at what is going to make money and what isn't going to make money. And the example I was pointing to is cancer research. All these years, they've been doing research on cancer treatments, right? They still haven't found a cure for cancer. And I've always, you know, been doubtful of this. Because to me, if you look at the numbers, there's no money in a cure. The money is in the treatment. Chemotherapy is incredibly expensive. I know people that have had to go through chemotherapy and even with the insurance, they're paying like $1,600 every visit for the treatment. So that's where the money is. So if you, I highly recommend that people research doctors in other countries. Cuba. Have, that's right. That's right. I was about to say. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Research doctors in other countries and you'll see that they are using different 
treatments to treat some of the same uh, diseases that we have here in this country where we're just basically going to the doctor and they're writing us a prescription and saying, take this medicine. Yes, absolutely. I mean, what what Sabrina and I are, are kind of chuckling about is this particular uh, type of cancer vaccine. Now, granted, it's not a panacea of cancer cures, um, but the Cubans, with their limited resources after, you know, a generate two, three generations worth of U.S. embargo and a stalemate relationship with this tiny island, somehow their doctors have MacGyvered some sort of vaccine that can literally extend the life of people with a certain type of lung cancer for five times more than the expect life expectancy here in the U.S. of those found in um, uh, stage two, stage three, so mid-stage lung cancers. There's treatment out there. Why do the Cubans have it, but the Americans who claim to be the leading researchers in, you know, R&D for cancer or whatever else medical issue you have, why have we not found that? Well, they found it. They have something. Not a panacea, again, but it's something. It's something. Why are the Cubans able to extend the life of their population? And as well as other countries that don't have this embargo stalemate relationship, people from other countries go there to Cuba to get that. So and you mean to tell me there is no emergency use authorization from the FDA on this? From this no. Is that what you're saying? No. And that's, <laughs> this is exactly what Sabrina and I are, are chuckling about when you know I shouted Cuba is because I've done some research on this because of a, a family member. Um, but we, we couldn't get my family member to Cuba. Even prescription drugs. You know, the reason that, you know, a lot of people want to try to get prescription drug, drugs from other countries is because they're right. cheaper. Right. Why are they so cheaper? I, I had a family member pass away um, a couple months ago because we couldn't get her to Cuba in time to receive this treatment when I knew about it for a, a long time. But there are so many hoops for American citizens to go through. Now, why do you suppose that is? Right. And you don't hear about that treatment, Sabrina, on TV, in the press, anywhere. You don't hear about it unless you literally know where to look and dig. That's right. I mean, they <laughs> they they make it so that you have to depend on big pharma. You have to depend on them. Right. Now, there are some things. Don't get me wrong. There are some, you know, illnesses and diseases where people do have to have some type of medicine to keep it at bay. But then there are some illnesses, like, for example, I know someone that had high blood pressure for years, and they were taking high blood pressure medication. Then they decided to get a second opinion, opinion, and that doctor told them they needed to make diet lifestyle changes. They made those changes, and they don't have to take high blood pressure medication anymore because they don't have high blood pressure anymore. Astonishing. Imagine that. I know, I know several of those. Imagine that. Now, before we run out of time, Sabrina, I want to take a few minutes uh, to pick your brain because you worked in higher ed. Um, we've, you know, everybody's been talking about the queen nonstop for the past, you know, 24 hours almost. Um, but one of the, as we were talking about social media just a moment ago, um, and the the big voice that is Jeff Bezos, you know, one of the top two or three richest men in the world, he threw some shade on a college professor at Carnegie Mellon because she said some not some unkind things about the queen, um, probably just before the queen was actually announced to have been 
uh, passed away, Jeff Bezos basically denounced this professor and Twitter took down the professor's tweet, I believe, um, for not conforming to community guidelines. But here you have the disparity, not only of wealth, but the immense power that Jeff Bezos wields, right? And and obviously he's the owner of Washington Post um, and not only that, Amazon. Um, But then you have this professor who, whose family was a victim of colonization of the crown expressing her views and you have big tech going in with big money and silencing her voice. What are, what are your thoughts on that? And, and, and will the, the school, Carnegie Mellon, will they weigh in on this? Do you think there's a chance that she could lose her job? Absolutely. I was just about to ask that question. Does she still have her job? Because it, some of these universities, especially someone or one like Carnegie Mellon, that's another one of those prestigious universities, they like for a certain narrative to go out, just like mainstream media. And when you try to, I guess, deviate from that narrative, they'll shut you down. They'll get rid of you. Look at what Harvard University did to Cornell West. Mm-hmm. He supported Palestine. That wasn't the narrative that the university was going with. So they figured they could punish him, not give him tenure. Uh, they'll find a way uh, to punish her. But it's it's sad because she should be able to speak about her experience and the effects that the effects that the British Empire colonization has had on her family. And it's really interesting to me, all the people who are really heartbroken over the fact that this woman and, and her family, they have really destroyed people's lives. They have intervened in so many countries. They've taken resources from those countries. They've had immense power over them. And I honestly think at this point, the British Empire, they should give reparations to every one of those countries that they have continued to intervene in, that they continue to take over. They have done tremendous damage to those countries. Not to mention the British Empire, they had Nazis in the family. So it's just, I don't, I can't understand why people are talking about her in such a way. It's like, oh, she was just this, this great, wonderful, oh gosh, they're such wonderful people. I want to remind everybody, Meghan Markle can't even live there because of the racism that she was experiencing from the same family. Come on. Thank you, Sabrina. Thank you so much for coming on. We have really appreciated your, your contribution. Thank you. It needed to be said. Oh, I hear one more last word. Go ahead, Sabrina, before we, we have to wrap. I sincerely hope that professor doesn't lose her job over this. But if she does, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. You, you worked in higher education. You know how they play these games. So uh, I guess we'll continue to monitor that. And, and, you know, if she we'll see what happens, if she can retain her job um, or worse, if she gets fired, hopefully uh, you'll get to talk to her because I'm sure you can make that happen and find out what really went down. Uh, Sabrina Salvati, host of the Savvy Sabs podcast, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, we look forward to speaking with you again. Um, and we're going to go ahead and head over to some callers. We're going to skip the break. We have a number of callers here. Uh, let's move on to our other friend, Robbie in Montana. Morning, y'all. Morning, Morning, Robbie. Got some good. Got some good news. We got our very first snow of the day coming through right now. Wow! What? So weather update in September? Uh, Climate change. Yes, sir. That's not normal. We. I tell you, we could. 
We could use some global warming here in Montana, so <laughs> send it up here to us. Is that normal, Robbie? Uh, oh, yeah. Well, we always get a good snow in October. Uh, September is hit or miss. I, I would say yes. This is normal. Uh, we wow. locals here call it California repellent. So when the Californians leave, so that's a good thing. Uh, Fair enough. And uh, just another quick thing. Uh, but Miss Reese, I, I really like your new your new plug, but I don't know what a beast of legalese is. I, I know what legalese is, but what was the first word mean? Vise is a strong storm, a rushing commotion, just a a, a gust, an onslaught, a violent a violent gust. I didn't know what that was either, Robbie. Well, according to Webster's Revised Unabridged Dictionary, published in 1913. All right, I'm glad it came from Webster's and not and not like <laughs> Urban, Urban Dictionary. dictionary. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Robbie, anything else on your mind? We got to move on to the next caller. Nope. Robbie, that was fun. Thank Take you. Care. You bundle up you out there. You stay warm. Good I Lord. know, right? Uh, let's go to Daniel in San Antonio. Hello, Daniel. Can you hear me? We got gotcha. you. Yeah, um, I'm going to be on the Queen's defense here. Um, apparently, um, John Potash brings out an interesting argument that the reason why Europe has such a good welfare state is because the royal families had a conflict with the industrialists, and it's because they, the royal families wanted to keep their power over the industrialists that they created the welfare state that they enjoy today and that we Americans wish we had. On a second note, have you heard of the curse of the Star of India that sits on the crown? I think Reese was talking about that. The Star of Africa? Um, Star of India, I believe it's called. Yeah, so there's a different one. So I don't there there are two different ones. I I think that's true. So this particular jewel's haunted and apparently it loves women. So women who own this Jewel, live a long, healthy life, just like Queen Elizabeth did. It's a good haunting? It oh, makes, wow. It, it's, a, it's a good haunting for the ladies. For the guys, it screws them over and Uh-oh. makes them mad. Whoa. Wait, mad as an angry or like insane? Insane. So or King Charles III, if that gets transferred to his crown and scepter... Well, I think there's a rule that they're not supposed to, that the male in the family are not supposed to own it when they occupy the throne. But considering the state of British politics going down the drain and that Scotland might be leaving in the next few years, you never know. Well, that's true. The, ah. there's been a so we're actually going to be leader. able to see a king, a king with a crown, I guess, because we've never... It's, it's not only in our queen. lifetime. Yeah, yeah, not in our lifetimes. We've... So it's called the Cory Noor Diamond. Okay. Yeah, so that's I'm actually not, true. See, I literally, do, I'm not a I, royal watcher, so I don't, I don't I think know. Most so of this us is, just watch from afar. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm a spectator at a very, very arm's length. But I appreciate you bringing that stuff up because I have no idea, Daniel. <laughs> but thank you. Can I add one more thing? Yeah. Um, my favorite story of the Queen is is she driving her Land Rover on her estate. With the Saudi, with the Saudi prince, the crown prince, people in the back seat. That's oh. the story of her. I've not seen that. I didn't even know she drove. Yeah, she actually. It was the Saudi crown prince Abdullah, oh. and she they they were getting ready to go somewhere, and all of a sudden the 
the um, Royal Fleet came around, which were all Land Rovers, and they thought oh. that it was going to be a driver. And it she got Queen in the Elizabeth? front seat, and she drove him around, and he was a all little, right. yeah. That, that, that right is then. a true story. Well, because women don't drive in Saudi Arabia. And just, that was the whole, saying. that was the significance right. of so it. And so she was like, hey, look at me, I can drive. On the wrong side of the car, yeah. mind you. Hello. All right. Thank you for that, Daniel. Um, we got time real quick. We got two minutes left. We have uh, Jeff in Kansas City. Hello, Jeff. How are you? Well, good morning to you all. Um, I want to respond to something that was said last hour. One of your co-hosts made yes, up Lyle Davis and the roles that she played. And um, I agree with her 100% that she take roles she shouldn't. Um, I don't like to see movies over and over again about the plight of people of color or minorities, whoever they may be, about the struggles and death and all that kind of stuff like that. And most of those movies does not portray true history. Like Viola Davis is the modern-day version of Cicely Tyson. That's how Cicely Tyson was back in the day. And I know you guys made a comment about Africans selling African, uh, selling other people to slavery. For the record, Africans did not sell other Africans to slavery. They sold people of color who had different bloodlines. And they and they did things different. They were not African. They were people of color with different bloodlines who happened to live in Africa. The European Jews and Arabs knew this. Like, all blacks are not Africans, just like all whites are not Europeans. And the way we can get along with other cultures, truth has to come out. And people have to support that truth. What we have here in America and the world is like a house divided against itself, and it can't stand. And people want progress, but they don't want to fight for it. They want change without changing but the world doesn't work that way. When white people wanted to be free from the tyranny of England in America, they fought for it. That's the American Revolutionary War. When people of color and other minorities wants to fight like that, it's a problem. Come on, Jeff. Well, people yep. of color, uh, even you, Vanilla Chan, that you have good jobs, but those jobs came with a price. You put in work for it, but people die for that job. That is the result of violence and fighting and loss of life on every side. There's no example from any country on the planet, nor in the history of the world, that when you fight oppression, violence is not the result of it. We got to leave it right there, Jeff. I got to I gotta jump in because we are out of time. But yes, appreciate. Those are some very good analyses, uh, Jeff, out there in Kansas City. That's going to do it for this week on Fault Lines here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Manila Chan, Malik Abdul, Reese Everson. Thank you for being with us, everybody. See you Monday. Fault lines.